Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. <laughs> B-F-T. Here's John Canzano with a bald-faced truth. Well, the sun is out. The blue skies are out in the, up there, I guess. I'm looking up. I'm looking up out a window, though. I don't know what you're doing. I hope you're enjoying this beautiful day. we got a great show for you today. We're going to have some fun on this bald-faced truth Tuesday. I'll give you a little bit of fallout from the Worlds of Sport convention that happened over the weekend. Man, I had fun there. Saw a lot of people out there. I wasn't on air yesterday. I took the holiday yesterday, but had a lot of fun Saturday and Sunday. Met a lot of listeners. Saw a lot of sports fans. Huge success. Benefited the Bald Face Truth Foundation, so I thank uh, everybody who made that part of their weekend. Really appreciative of that. It means there'll be a year two event. So save the date next year. We'll talk about it. Now I'll stop crowing about it. We got a great great show, though, today. We're going to talk deeply about Oregon and Oregon State football, Washington and Washington State football this week. We're going to take a deep dive. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, you know, it's time to start drilling down, so to speak. Been hearing a lot of interesting things about Cameron Ward, the quarterback at Washington State. Jake Dickert, the coach at Washington State, I talked to him over the weekend. He said Ward's everything that everybody's whispering about. What are they whispering about? Well, they're saying things like he's got great feet. He's got a quick release. That he has command of the offense. How good can Washington State be next season with Cameron Ward at quarterback? I got the sense from Jake Dickert that they're going to be pretty good. In fact, Dickert said if we can keep him upright, meaning if they can take care of uh, what will be a relatively inexperienced core group on the offensive line, Washington State could be a little bit dangerous in the so-called North Division. I'm going to say so-called North Division because who knows what the Pac-12 Conference is doing with divisions or not doing with divisions moving forward. We'll also talk uh, about Washington football on today's show. Kalen DeBoer, first-year coach, had some people, uh, again, reach out to me over the weekend who track college football, and they're saying, gosh, is it possible that the sleeper team in the Pac-12 could be Washington, that everybody's dismissing the program after Jimmy Lake's departure, and that the Huskies have got it figured out? We'll talk about that specifically on the show today. Uh, Mike Vorrell, the beat reporter from the Seattle Times, will be joining us. He covers Washington football. I'll ask him. How good is that team that he's covering? We'll talk about Dan Lanning's Ducks. We'll talk about Jonathan Smith's Beavers also this week. I'm just going to kind of sift around, and I've been reaching out to uh, other Pac-12 sources saying, all right, who are the people we want to get on this show, and what do they want to talk about? So we'll talk Huskies on today's show, and this week in particular, in these next four days of this work week where this show is airing, We will drill down on the teams in the Pacific Northwest in the Pac-12 Conference. We're also going to talk about baseball and football cards, sports cards and memorabilia. I got exposed to it again 
I make it sound like it's a disease. I got exposed to it again uh, uh, over the weekend at Worlds of Sport. They had a uh, memorabilia section where they had a whole bunch of memorabilia dealers, card dealers. PWCC was there and some others, and got a chance to walk around a little bit. And I can tell you, it's really easy to get swept up into it. Had a bunch of people come up to me and say, man, I went home and I took my cards out after being there on Saturday, and then they came back on Sunday to the event. One of the things that we did during the event is we did a card break. And if you don't know what a card break is, it's essentially nowadays uh, some of these boxes that are sold by the trading card companies uh, contain rare cards, autograph cards, cards with holograms, cards with uh, you know signatures on them. Some of them are numbered. Some of them is you know one of four, four of four, whatever it is. Uh, and uh, they come at a premium when you after you open them. Well, what they have been doing and what we did over the weekend, we had a lot of fun. I think I, it was one of the highlights of my Saturday because I didn't see it coming. You know how you expect things, and even if like you're a little kid, you have expectations, and then your expectations get high, and then maybe your birthday party happens. And, but it, what what often ends up being delightful or some of the delightful things that happen in life are the things you don't expect. And what I'm saying is the card breaks, which I had no idea, I'd never participated in one, never even really saw one outside of like social media. Uh, the card breaks were a lot of fun. Uh, we ended up opening up a bunch of valuable boxes of cards. In fact, one of the boxes only contained one card. Uh, and these boxes sell for $300, $400, $500, $600. But well, we're going to talk to a guest on today's show who does card breaks. And we'll talk about why that has become a phenomenon in sports collectibles. All of that and more on today's show. Judah Newby, Peter Sampson, how you doing, buddy? Uh, Peter, you doing well today? Yeah, I'm fantastic, man. Had so much fun at the event this weekend. Did you get outside at all this morning, this, today, or you been inside all day? Uh, I've been inside all day and will continue to be. So this morning I made sure to just get out, get a little bit of sun, and just appreciate that summer's here. Yeah, I, I said to Anna right before the show, I said I need to go outside. I'd been inside working all day, and and uh, I went outside, and I was like, man, has it been like this all morning? And she said, no, this morning it wasn't as – it was a little bit overcast, but it, it has certainly – turned into a great week great weather i know we're pacific northwesterners is that what we say pacific northwesterners is that the uh we're from the pacific northwest the sun comes out we all act like it's never been out before but man i really appreciate blue skies and good weather uh a lot to talk about in sports but we're going to get right to it to here coming up in just a few minutes mike borrell will be joining us from the Seattle Times to talk about these these teams. But before I get to that, I noticed in your update, Peter, Brooks Kepka making the leap to the LIV tournament. Um, it looks like they're, uh, you know, obviously his brother had already joined it. He is now joining it. What do you think is changing to lure a, uh, a guy like Kepka into the LIV? Just enough money at this point, or did something happen? That's what I would assume is maybe there was an initial offer and he saw that, well, you know, the 17 other uh, golfers that made the, the switch, of course, a lot of people have criticized them, but nothing truly terrible's happened. Maybe the check cleared and, uh, you know, maybe you combine that with a little bit higher of an offer. I know that the tournament is looking to get uh, involved with the, uh, the points, uh, you know, committee and actually be able to qualify for points. We don't know if that'll happen, but maybe a combination of, of those three things together is maybe just enough to get him over. I feel like it's just like because you know, he said emphatically 
that he was not going to play in the golf series, the LIV series, that his brother was in. He wouldn't judge him for it, but he wasn't going to play in it. So it feels to me like they just found his price at some point. They made him an offer, so to speak, that he couldn't refuse. And so, you know, it was like last week at the U.S. Open, he basically said, you know, that, you know, he wasn't going to judge these other golfers, including his brother, but that he was loyal to the PGA Tour. Now he is uh, basically saying, hey, they found my price. I'm going to go do this thing. But maybe it was just a guy like Kepka was looking over just to see how much grief these other golfers were going to take at an event like a U.S. Open. And I don't think they took a lot of uh, heckling or anything like that. And he, he realized, oh, you know what, I could do that for the right price. Kind of feel like that's, the, you know, that's it. But by the way, at the U.S. Open, the LIV golfers did not fare well. What do you think? What do you think that uh, like what? What do we blame that on? Yeah, maybe I. I know you know Phil finished eleven under. He didn't make the cut, and I wonder if it is. Uh... I doubt he's being heckled there at the open, obviously, but maybe there's that sort of internal pressure, you know, you know, I'll show these guys, I they need me, I don't need them. And I wonder if there was just that little bit of extra tension, that little bit of distraction. Yeah. In golf, you know, John, man, anything in your mind, it'll kill your game. Players only PGA meeting today. Uh, according to uh, the London Telegraph, Kepa got a seven-figure deal uh, similar to Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson when he jumped over. Now he that makes him the second highest ranked player to have joined the league. Uh, Kepka's at number 19 on the World Golf Rankings. Johnson's at 16. So there you have it. Um, will more golfers jump? Probably. If the money is there, they'll probably do that. But I think, also think Kepka is uh, joining his brother on this tour. I wonder how much that has to play for this. But um, you know, when he at, when he was asked why he was staying with the tour just a week ago, he said there's nowhere else to go. Now apparently there is somewhere else to go, so he is moving on. So that's that. Uh, we'll see what happens. I want to know if people are going to go to this event. Uh, I know that they're desperate to sell tickets. They're, the ticket sales, I can tell by the way they're marketing, have not been robust. Uh, and I'm wondering if they care at all if they have fans at the events. I'm kind of just curious to see who comes out there. And what I mean by that is I don't think any this entire tour, at least in the first couple of years, I don't think it's about making money at all. I think it's, it's a marketing, it's a branding play by the uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I'm not as angry as some of the people who are... Um, who are, uh, you know, name-calling on this tour and such. You know, I saw somebody say, essentially, uh, that Kepka uh, found a horse head in his bed or whatever, like, you know, make me an offer I can't refuse type type thing, you know. But uh, Golf Week magazine wrote that. Here's the lead on the Golf Week magazine story about Kepka jumping. Now, I don't like this tour, okay? I'm not in favor of it. I'm, I'm not going to give it publicity. I don't like that we're being used. I got problems that the Pacific Northwest is being used and the tournament in the course out at Pumpkin Ridge is being used. But let me read you this paragraph from Golf Week, because I wouldn't go this far. Uh, here it is. Somewhere over the last few days, writes Eamon Lynch, since when he was telling friends that he was emphatically out of the LIV golf series, Brooks Kepka found a metaphorical horse's head in his bed, an offer he couldn't refuse from the Saudi dismemberment enthusiast behind the breakaway circuit. I wouldn't go that far. That's, pro that's too far for me. I'm not, I'm not comfortable with the Saudi government. I'm not comfortable with their human rights record.
but you know, I I don't like this because we're being used in the Pacific Northwest, and we're being, you know, Pumpkin Ridge is being used, and they're sports washing their their brand using our courses, our region, and an underserved sports market. But I'm not going to go as far as to like include like I like I my eyes widened when I saw Saudi dismemberment enthusiasts behind the breakaway circuit. Like I'm I'm not telling you you should go watch this event because I think it would be appropriate if no one showed up except the golfers and the and the caddies. But I also am not going to go that far. We got a great show for you today. Mike Vorell of the Seattle Times coming up. We're going to talk to him about Washington football. How good can the Huskies be? Uh, and I'll get the outside-in look at the Ducks and Beavers from Vorell as well. He's, he follows them. He's seen them. He covers them. But he's been around Kalen DeBoer and the Huskies. How good can UW be next football season? We'll talk about it coming up with the guy who is the expert following that program. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. is the best if you want to talk Washington football you want to read Washington football you want to know what the heck's going on with the Huskies you read the Seattle Times and you meet and you read Mike Varell who does a hell of a job covering the team he's joining us now is it sunny and beautiful in Seattle as well Mike it is I think summer started at about noon today so I'm happy <laughs> we finally made it it's funny, my eight-year-old said that. She said, summer has started. I said, you have one more day of school. Uh, we got one more day over here. Uh, let's talk Huskies. I want to take a deep dive here. Just, you know, the immediate, uh, you know, question for me is just the the enthusiasm level for Washington in the wake of Jimmy Lake's departure and Kalen DeBoer's arrival. How much enthusiasm are you hearing about and feeling for the program right now? Yeah, there's a lot of excitement around the program internally. I think it's one of those things, you know, unsurprisingly, from a national perspective, people look at the record 4-8, and eight, you know, what happened last season, and they'll kind of overlook the program. But on the inside, you know, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of rhetoric, as you get with a lot of different programs when new coaches come in. But just the idea that this is not a rebuild, that, you know, this is still a program that had all of those top 12 to 15 recruiting classes in 2018, 2019, 2020. A lot of those guys are still on this team, and I think Kalen DeBoer came in and has inspired a lot of confidence. I mean, he's a really genuine person. I think he's a people person and someone who does a really good job of winning those guys you know, over in, in, uh, in quick fashion, and there certainly has been a lot of buy-in. But at the same time, you've talked with a lot of reporters who cover a lot of programs that said that same thing. So it's kind of uh, trying to parse how much of that is talk, how much of that is empty enthusiasm, and how much of that is the real deal as the team tries to come back from four and eight. Yeah, and I think you know I love I love what DeBoer did, especially at Fresno State. Do you get an idea of kind of what the identity of the program will be already? Well, I I think it's a lot of what they paid for. You know, with Kalen DeBoer, when I mean, you saw this in the Oregon game last year, they're going to have an exciting offense. They're going to score points. They're going to, you know, the big thing with UW is can they put their best players in positions to succeed? Because that offense last season just could not get going. It just couldn't 
highlight their playmakers the way that they wanted to. So I, I feel like offensively that's where everything starts here. Uh, defensively they want to be a really, a really attacking group. I think it's going to come down to, with a lot of teams, with this one specifically, a year ago they couldn't run the ball, they couldn't stop the run. Obviously you need good quarterback play, especially in this offense. But if they can't run the ball and they can't stop the run, then they're not going to get a whole lot done. I think that's where they want to start and kind of move out from there and then offensively obviously create a lot of explosive plays. Quarterback position, uh, I, you know, who's going to throw the passes and how, how, how do you feel about that position right now? Well, there's still some debate, obviously, with that where you go into the fall with a, a three-man competition with Michael Penix Jr. being the transfer from Indiana and then obviously Dylan Morris, who was the starter last year, Sam Heward, who's the five-star redshirt freshman, I think, you know, it'd be hard to imagine for me a guy like Michael Penix coming over where he had a lot of success at Indiana in an offense where um, Kalen DeBoer was the offensive coordinator. If he's healthy, it'd be hard for me to imagine him coming in as a junior and not being the starter. Now, with that said, this is a guy who's never played more than six games in a season because he's had all kinds of different injuries. So if you're a Sam Hewitt or if you're a Dylan Morris, it's a cliche to say you're always one play away, but that really is the truth more in Washington than a lot of other places. So I expect Penix to be the day one starter, um, but who knows who will start you know, the last game of the season against Washington State. How do you see Penix fitting in the divorce system? Because you know we saw what he did with Jake Hayner at Fresno State. I think Penix is a heck of a player. You're right if they can keep him healthy. But how does he sort of fit what DeBoer wants to do? I think he fits well. I think he's a guy who, if you want to question something in his game, you know, I don't know how consistent he's been throwing the deep ball over the course of his career in Indiana. But with DeBoer, with, with quick completions, easy completions, moving the ball, I think a lot of what they want to do is you know, having a guy under center who really understands the offense and gets the ball out. And he's very effective at doing that. He was very effective at doing that with Kalen DeBoer. In the lone season they were together in Indiana, he completed 68% of his passes. That's what they want. They want a guy who's going to get the ball into the hands of their playmakers and let them operate. With him, it's just a matter of, of you know how consistently he can do that and if he can stay healthy doing it over the course of the season. Jimmy Lake's departure still, you know, kind of lingering. And you know, I I look back to what happened last season and how valuable continuity was. Mike, in your opinion, at what point did Jimmy? sort of lose the job? I know they eventually part ways, but in your mind, where did he lose his hold on the job? That's a great question. I, I think, you know, the Montana loss being obviously, you, you can make a very strong case for the worst loss in the history of the program. That's a, a major red flag. With that said, they're not going to fire a guy after losing one game, uh, you know, after being 3-1 and one the previous year. I, I think you can see cracks in the foundation at that point. But I don't think from, from a Jen Cohen perspective, from an organizational perspective, that he lost his job really before that Oregon week with the academic comments about Oregon that were you know certainly misplaced and then doing what he did with the sideline incident. I think it was trending in that direction. It would have been interesting to see what had happened after the season. But the combination of those factors you know, forced Jen Cohen and company to move on. Mike Varell, Seattle Times, is with us. You did a really nice profile of Kalen DeBoer, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I love this quote, you can coach out of fear, but you can coach out of love, too. What kind of guy is he? You know, there's a lot of uh, Chris Peterson comparisons 
with Kalen DeBoer, which, you know, some are earned, some are probably not. There's really only one Chris Peterson, and you know that. But this is another guy where I, I get I get it. He's someone who doesn't yell. He doesn't really raise his voice. He doesn't really swear. He comes from that South Dakota kind of small-town uh, culture. Um, but there's just something about him when you talk to him. He's very engaging. He looks you in the eye. You feel something there. And I think he really does a good job of motivating kids without having to push certain buttons. But I think, you know, Jimmy Lake was more of a rah-rah, fiery motivator. And Kalen DeBoer gets the job done there, but does it in more of a subtle way, and more of a maybe more of a genuine way um, than a lot of coaches you're going to see. So how is that going to translate? You know, there's a lot of questions with him at UW, and, and recruiting is probably the biggest one. Can he win those battles against the Oregons and the USC's? But you certainly see when you get to know him what the appeal is and how this guy has been so successful in so many places. Mike Farrell, Seattle Times, with us talking about Washington football. Uh, I know that the program has gotten a lot of criticism in recent years for not keeping high school kids uh, home, so to speak. Jacob Lane, uh, Puyallup kid, edge rusher, uh, commits to Washington, uh, 2023 class, 6'5", 230. That's a big win for DeBoer. Was that a sigh of relief moment, or let's see some more? Yeah, I think it was more of the latter. I mean, Jacob Lane is a good get and a guy who could be a real steal because his, his testing numbers, he's got, you know, he's 6'5", 230, can really run, can really jump, but he's a raw prospect. He's not one of the premier uh, recruits in the state when it comes to a rankings prospect or, you know, the expectation that he'll play right away. Um, certainly when you've lost to Josh Connolly Jr. To, to, the, to the rival school in the last class, a lot of this is, you know, things that you have to sort of undo, and it's going to take some time for this staff to really get the kids lo- locally to believe in them and to understand the vision. I think they're doing a good job. They're trying to set the foundation. But it's going to take time, and it's going to take wins, and it's going to get take, uh, you know, just, just uh, a season or two seasons or three seasons of really building that continuity and that culture um, but but no doubt, outside of maybe California, the state of Washington is the major priority for the staff. Mike Burrell, Seattle Times with us. Uh, Mike, before I cut you loose here, uh, we offense was an issue last year. Defensively, is the core of this defense intact from the last couple years? How did the transfer portal treat Washington with the departure of a coach? You know, I don't think that there was too much concern in terms of the portal. When you look at the, the programs, you know, surrounding Washington and a lot of, you know, ones nationally, really not too many guys left. You had a guy like a Jacoby Covington who was a big-time recruit at corner who went to USC, but he did so because he wasn't, you know, projected as being a starter at Washington. Um, you obviously had, had a starter in, in Sam Taki Taimani go to Oregon on the defensive line, which is unfortunate. You really, this group is going to have to reload a little bit, and they've done so in the transfer portal, especially at the linebacker position where Eddie Ufoshio, one of their standouts, uh, may miss some games with an injury this season. They pick up a Cam Bright from Pittsburgh. They, they pick up a Christopher Mole from UAB. They've reloaded there. They, they, they think quietly that they've still got a lot of talent at cornerback, even though you lose two draft guys in Trent McDuffie and Kyler Gordon. It's going to be an interesting sort of mishmash of returners, transfers, and young players who need to step up. So there's certainly some questions there. Um, but it's a matter of how these guys are going to gel and how they're all, they're all going to fit into this new system. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Now, here, here it is, Mike. Here's the question everybody wants to know. Oregon's got a new coach. Not sure 
about Washington State. I think they're going to be dangerous. Like, they could be good. They could flirt around with maybe getting to the title game. But I'm hearing more and more people ask me about Washington. Do you think there's a shot that Kalen DeBoer could be a surprise in year one? Could this team contend for a Pac-12 berth to the Pac-12 championship game? Yeah, I think it's a possibility. I, you know, when when they say that, you know, it, it is a bit of a cliche. But when they, when they tell their guys and they tell the public, you know, this isn't a rebuild. That's not that's not the mindset. I I, I think they're being genuine. It's a matter of how things come together. I think UW may have the biggest chasm between ceiling and floor in the Pac-12. Where obviously, with a lot of these same players, you saw a four and eight season where very little went right. But at the same time, you've got a lot of really talented kids, and you've brought in some talent via the portal. You've got a fresh system, and you've got a staff where you feel like, you know, they haven't been on this level, but it seems like a group of coaches who really know what they're doing. Um, so, you know, I would say that an eight-win season wouldn't surprise me. A nine-win season is probably, you know, near near the top of their ceiling. And it just is not just as easily, but it certainly could go the other way, where this could be a six-win team, it could be a five-win team. If things really fall apart, it could be a four-win team. We certainly saw that last year. But I think, you know, that there's a, a bigger extreme between the potential positive and negative at this program, maybe more so than any other one in the Pac-12. Yeah, I think you're right. I, and I like their schedule. I don't believe they play Utah or USC in the regular season. Right. Is that right? They skip them both. That's correct, yeah. They've got some things going their way where obviously they've got the premier non-conference game against Michigan State at home. You get Stanford at home. You know, you, you go on the road at UCLA, which should be a tricky game. Arizona State's probably a little bit down. Um, and obviously you have Oregon on the road, which is never easy. Um, but, they, but, you know, being able to avoid a USC and avoid a Utah in the South, you know, obviously creates some, some major advantages, and we'll see if they can take advantage of those. I think it's going to be fascinating. Mike, I appreciate you, man. Good stuff. You can follow him on Twitter. At Mike Farrell. Read him in the Seattle Times. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, John. Good stuff there. Rich stuff. He is the go-to on that Washington football beat among the writers. And I think, you know, if you're looking at Washington this season as a potential sleeper, there are a couple things that have to break their way. Michael Penix Jr. has got to stay healthy, and he hasn't been able to do that at any point of his career. They can keep him healthy, keep him upright. they got a shot. I like and I often have seen cases where quarterbacks and head coaches and maybe even quarterbacks who haven't done well, Darren Thomas comes to mind with the arrival of Chip Kelly when he sort of got paired with Chip Kelly. All of a sudden, Darren Thomas was a different quarterback. Dennis Dixon had some success as well uh, in that setting when he got with Chip Kelly. So I think if you can get Michael Penix Jr. with Kalen DeBoer and keep him healthy, you got something there. I also think it's a different, uh, I don't want to call it a rebuild either, but it's a different reset at Washington under Kalen DeBoer than it would be if you were starting all the way over. They did retain the core of Jimmy Lake's teams. They have players who had already been through one coaching change, and, and here they came and it got, a dis, got disrupted. They went from Chris Peterson to Jimmy Lake to Kalen DeBoer in a very short period of time. And so I think they're going to be a little better than you would expect them to be because of that. They have more continuity than maybe we expect. But then the schedule is interesting. If you keep Penix Jr. healthy, if you do capitalize on that continuity, and 
you don't have to play Washington. I mean, excuse me, you don't have Washington doesn't have to play Utah or USC in the regular season. It, there's about a game to a game and a half advantage there, at least a half game advantage over some of their North Division, so to speak, counterparts. You know, they don't. You know, they don't have uh, like Oregon State has to play those teams. Like the three best teams in the Pac-12, or the three most dangerous teams in the Pac-12 are Utah, USC, and Oregon. Those are the teams nobody wants to play. And those are the teams that the Pac-12 Conference has gamed the schedule to favor or benefit. So if you're Washington and you don't have to play two of those three, and Oregon State has to play all three, and Washington State has to play all three, and Oregon only has to play one, they only play Utah in the regular season, um, you've got an advantage over Washington State and Oregon State if you're Washington. It could tip the scales their way if it's close in what has been perceived to be the North Division. Pac-12 Conference will update us uh, as Media Day approaches in July as to whether or not the divisions will get thrown out altogether sooner rather than later. I know they're going to throw them out later, but there's some speculation that the conference could accelerate that to this season. Why not? Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide. I'll play some punch it audio and more coming up. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Had a lot of fun over the weekend. I appreciate everybody who came by Worlds of Sport. It was fun to see a positive, family-friendly event happening in our region. It was great to see a bunch of sports fans in one place, and uh, it was historic, man. There was, there was, uh, you know, it, I've never before seen Oregon, Oregon State, the uh, Winterhawks, the Thorns, the Timbers, the Blazers, everybody in one place. It was great to see everybody in one place. It was absolutely fantastic. A lot of positive feedback from the event. Uh, I think it'll be bigger and better in year two. Uh, my parents were there over Father's Day weekend. Uh, my dad was out there selling gloves and memorabilia. He got a chance to talk to a lot of listeners of this show. He was really excited about that. It was very stimulating for my dad, who's in his 70s. I actually uh, heard that he threw a pass to somebody. Somebody bought a football from uh, from his uh, booth. He was selling memorabilia and footballs and baseballs and stuff like that, and uh he made the guy go out for a pass, Peter Sampson, and he threw him the pass across the convention center. I love that. Did he, did he get some air under that thing? I, I guess. I didn't see it, but I said to him, he, he said the guy wanted to buy the football. He said, go long. <laughs> he made him throw it gotta to get, him. Got to get that radar gun in front of it. You were there as part of a panel discussion on sports yeah. wagering with Alanae's Hugh Offill, who is the the uh, sportsbook manager there. How did that panel discussion go? Because that was my only chance to go grab something to eat, and I ran over to the concessions and grabbed a hot dog, and I caught just part of it. But how did that go for you? It was good. It was a great experience. It was a it was a beautiful stage, great sound system. I mean, everything was top notch there. But it was it was really interesting. I didn't realize that Alan A was going to have uh, plans for the sports book to go in, hopefully in the near future. And you can actually, uh, with very few limitations, get down on college sports there. Now you can't bet on the Washington schools, but you know if you're like me and you want to maybe put a little action on the Ducks or the Beavers, you know you you got to maybe use some dubious means you don't know if you're going to get your money back <laughs> Dubious means. <laughs> that's a nice way to put it but yeah, yeah that's exciting 
It's interesting because I think there's a, in that space right now, there's obviously a lot of jockeying for position. You've got the Oregon Lottery that out of the gates had, you know, their their uh, scoreboard operation that, you know, was the first foray into wagering, sports wagering in our state, legalized wagering. And then came their admission that they kind of went, hey, we're better off outsourcing this. Uh, and, you know, they go and say, look, we're going to bring in a third party that's going to do this for us. And, and uh, they're, you know, they go to, they go to DraftKings and, and here comes the DraftKings operation. And everybody knows DraftKings. And I think it's been a lot better, uh, you know, out of the gates. But the tribal casinos can't be happy about it. And I noticed this, you know, I noticed that I started hearing from attorneys that represent the tribal casinos who were telling me, hey, uh, this thing is not done yet, that they want to be the only entities that are allowed to take wagers on uh, college games, first of all. So I think they're going to do quite a bit of lobbying. And I remember when this came up, as a topic in the last legislative session, it came up and it was debated about, and we had uh, Peter Courtney on this show, and he talked about legalization of, of wagering in the state, and then he talked about the ability or inability for people to wager on, uh, you know, collegiate wagering in our state, like bet on Oregon or Oregon State games. He tried to propose that legislation. It was shot down. Some of the people who want to, uh, they wanted to do some studies, which is just code for let's stall this thing out and not get anything done. But I think what you have here is you have the tribal casinos that really would like to participate or have some exclusivity when it comes to wagering on games, they, meaning they want the Oregon-Oregon State. They want to be the only book that can take the Oregon and Oregon State games because it's the angle that they have right now. And then you have, like, the general public really pushing – for DraftKings to carry those games. I think the solution, if we're being real, is just to take the gloves off and allow a free market. Like, allow the tribal casinos to have apps that can compete head-to-head with DraftKings. Allow everybody to have all the games, and let's just see who the best, you know, let the best uh, company win. Like, what's wrong with that? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, that's sort of the uh, the ultimate idea of what we do in America. And you have to imagine that, uh, you know, bettors will ultimately, they'll flock to either whether it's the most consistent app, the best experience, the best lines. There are a lot of different opportunities to draw people in with that. Yeah, I guess you could, that, that would be a selling point is you could tell people, hey, you can use DraftKings. You could also, if they allowed A and like Spirit Mountain and, and uh, Chinook wins to all have apps. Would that be a solution? Like Peter, you'd have a b- the ability to check your line on all three apps and see who has the best line, the best specials, the best props. That kind of competition's good for the consumer. What's not good for the consumer is state legislatures saying state legislators saying, "Hey, you can only use our preferred partner if you're not on a tribal, you know, on tribal grounds, meaning DraftKings has got a monopoly everywhere in the state except Spirit Mountain, Chinook Winds, and then as you go up into A. A. So I, I just think the solution would be for the legislators in the state of Oregon to go, look, we want a free market here. Let's create a free market and let's allow the tribal casinos to create apps that can compete head-to-head with the Oregon Lottery's DraftKings app, 
And then let's also allow everybody to have the college games, and let's just see what happens here. Because I think what's going to happen is I think the state could collect uh, a whole bunch of revenue. Uh, I think that we would get better service for people who are using the various apps. And I think in the end, uh, it's a win-win. But I know the lobbyists for the tribal casinos are not going to want the Oregon and Oregon State games to be on the board on DraftKings. They're going to fight that. And and I know that uh, the lobbyists that are, are advocating on behalf of the Oregon Lottery are not going to want competition in that app space off tribal ground from Chinook Winds and Spirit Mountain and A. So keep an eye on all of that. Coming up, our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know today. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Got a whole bunch of great sound that came out of the uh, Warriors parade. I'm kind of over, I, I don't know, I'm not, I guess I'm not, I guess I would really want a parade in Portland. I can remember when the uh, Blazers talked about the 77 championship parade, Bill Walton and Bill Shonley and a lot of the Blazers have talked about that parade and how amazing it was. But I also know that when the Timbers won their championship several years ago, their MLS Cup championship, uh, it was kind of interesting to see them do a parade. And I was like, you know what, why the hell not? You win it, go throw a parade. Only one team gets to throw a parade at the end of the season. But I kind of watched the Warriors parade. And maybe it's just because it's not happening in Portland. And, I'm, and maybe it's just because they they've had multiple championship parades in this run with Steph Curry, Draymond Green, et cetera. But it's, I kind of find it all obnoxious. Am I, am I just being grumpy, Peter Sampson? Maybe, because I'll tell you, that is the one thing, the before I die, I am walking and participating <laughs> in a parade down Broadway for the Blazers. I'm not going to drink any champagne. I want to be able to remember it for as long as I live. But again, the words, that's four and eight years for him, you know? So, eh, yeah. same old, same old. Yeah, it's like, you know, there's a bunch of kids in the Bay Area who have been to multiple parades, and I'm not sure. Uh, Draymond Green uh, made a speech. I'm going to play a, a, a chunk of this speech. Here's Draymond Green, Championship Parade. I don't know what y'all want me to tell you. that we better than everybody? <laughs> you want from me? Now, this, is, um, this has been an amazing year. Uh, I told y'all don't let us win a f***ing championship. And clearly, nobody could stop it. Um, I warned y'all, so I'm just going to continue to destroy people on Twitter, as I have been, um, and Instagram stories. Uh, I really love this, this group, and when I say this group, I mean this entire group. You know, there were times where we won a championship, and everything didn't have to be aligned. Like, you were just that good. And for this to work, Every single person up here had to be aligned. And it's so special. And, you know, you talk about which championship means more. And the reality is every, every single one of them, it, it has its own journey. Like, I didn't, I was numb to the entire feeling of after the game because of the journey that this was. And, and, and what you appreciate about the journey is the people that you go through it with. And, you know, what brings me the most joy, I know everybody probably think it's talking shit, 
Um, but what brings me the most joy in winning a championship ever since I won my first one is seeing the guys who win it the first time. Because in, in your journey, you always want that feeling back. Like, that first time you do it, you want that feeling back. And the reality is, is you never get it again. And the only way to truly get it is to feel it through an Andrew Wiggins, is to feel it through a Jordan Poole, is to, you know, to feel it through an Otto Porter and Belly and Moses and JK and GP, D. Lee, you know, this ain't D. Lee first time around, but, you know, you, you feel it through those guys. And that's how you get that sensation again. So um, I just want to say thank you all. And as always, fuck everybody else. I love y'all. See, I, I don't know if all the rest of us should feel great about that, that end part. <laughs> it was directed at every other NBA market and every non-NBA market in the league. But Warriors were the best team. They get to throw the parade. They get to have the final word on this one. I also think it uh, is evidence. He said something early on there about lining up. Everybody lined up in the same direction. It's something I talk about all the time on the show. I think successful businesses, successful sports teams, have the congruency of vision that, that the others do not. And it starts with ownership and your general manager. You have to start there. It, that has to be right. Ownership, GM. Because if it's not right, you don't get the right players. You don't have an owner who is doing what the general manager needs to be done in order to assure that t- that players are going to be there. So I don't care if you are running a ice cream parlor or if you're running a school or a radio station or an NBA team. If you don't have ownership lined up with the general manager of the operation, whatever that GM role is in the bus- respective business, uh, you're, you're fighting with one arm tied behind your back, and they're about – I think about half the teams in the league that don't have that first step right. Portland's one of them. Doesn't have the first step right. There is no owner. Jody Allen, she's not the owner. It's a trustee. It's the Paul G. Allen Living Trust, now converted into the trust uh, after his death. And since 2018, they have had no congruency of vision from ownership to GM. And even before that, I think they had some disconnect between ownership and GM. I think it was at its best when Bob Witsit was the general manager all the way up until 2003 when he walked away because at least Witsit, criticism of him being in Seattle, at least he was in Seattle where the owner was. and They seemed to be in better communication or at least on the same page more so than you see nowadays. So right now I think about half the teams in the league don't have the ownership slash GM equation right, and the Blazers are among them. So they got to fix that. Yeah, Portland does. Then the second equation that you have is it then goes one step further, right? It, it's, the natural progression is, okay, ownership lined up with GM, so you're drafting right, you're drafting right, you're trading right, you are signing free agents, you're on the same page, the owner will spend if the GM says, you know, can sell, here's, the, here's why you should spend, the owner will write the check. N- the next equation is the head coach. Is the head coach in alignment with the general manager and owner? Again, I'll even go back to recent years, like maybe even three or four years ago, uh, I don't think the Blazers were lined up there because Terry Stotts, the coach, I don't think he had the players, the right players that he needed to, to run the system that he wanted and we saw in the end the general manager throwing him under the bus. And I can tell you if the GM is willing to throw you under the bus, you don't have congruency of vision. 
So I think you eliminate another 15 to 20% of NBA teams, and all of a sudden it's about 65% of the league that has no shot, right? No owner, GM congruency, the coach isn't in alignment. The next thing after that, it's the players. Are the players on board? Does every player on this team, as Draymond Green sort of starts mentioning the players on the team, he's right. If you don't have everybody on the team pointed in the same direction, let's eliminate another 15 to 20% of the teams in the league. Now we're down to 15% left over. So it's like you get the teams like the Boston Celtics, who I think are relatively early in this run, you know, just having hired Ime Udoka, they've got some young players on their team. Uh, they're, they, they've been in transition with Brad Stevens going from coaching to the front office role. So I think the Boston Celtics are an early, uh, early addition of an Eastern Conference team that might compete and contend or hang around the uh, Eastern Conference finals for several seasons. I'm not saying they're, they're shooing to get back to the finals because some things have to break your way, but they're in that conversation. So all that's left after you go from owner to do GM to coach to players, all that's left, and, and I don't want to call it luck, but some of this is staying healthy. Some of this is uh, you know circumstances you can't control, uh, bad breaks. How, what is your reaction when a player gets hurt? What is the franchise's reaction? Do you have a willingness if a player gets hurt for an owner and a GM to to go out and think creatively and, and move past a problem. And frankly, when you make a mistake in free agency or the draft, a lot of the great teams will pivot quickly. They will very quickly abandon a player and go, nope, not for us. And the loser teams, they hang on to those players because they go, oh, that's an asset. We don't want to give it up. So what we're really talking about is 15% of the league even having a chance to win this thing. It's why every year, what do we do? We go, well, it's the Lakers or it's the, in the, in the NFL, it's the Patriots for years. And, but I think as you look forward to this next NBA season, you certainly have to include Golden State as a contender and Boston as a contender. And I think there's just a handful of other teams barring uh, some draft surprises that will even have a shot at this thing. So it's about five or six teams really competing every year. I think Draymond Green's got it got it figured out. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to talk about sports memorabilia. What is a card break? Jordan Schultz coming up next. BFFT. Here's John Canzano with a bald-faced truth. If you're a sports fan, uh, I hope you checked out Worlds of Sports. If not, I'll send you some video once it's produced. I thought it was a lot of fun on on Saturday in particular. i got to be honest. On Saturday in particular when the doors opened, there was a line about 75 deep that was in the convention center going up the stairs. The door hadn't opened yet. And I was in the lobby still, and the doors open, and I, I saw people go into the room, and I thought, you know what? We needed an event like that. I'm glad that it happened. I'm glad that it uh, became a thing. Now, one of the highlights of the event, for me in particular, 
was checking out the sports cards and memorabilia. A lot of great card dealers in our region were part of the event. It was fun to kind of walk around when I had a chance to walk around and look at some things. We also, on the main stage, did some card breaks. Jordan Schultz, known as Schultzy. He's got a website called SchultzysCardPulls.com. He was doing box breaks. I'm going to let him explain what a box break is, because I let him do it on the stage. And then we're going to talk about why that's become such a big deal. Winning cards. Opening cards. Like, I think there's something to this. If you're on YouTube, you understand that brain chemistry is involved in, in what is going on in YouTube. There's a whole phenomenon. There's a whole uh, industry of people opening presents, packages, Pokemon packs, Pokemon, Pokemon packs, and toys and all, you know, any kind of surprise. It literally feeds your brain chemistry. It, it's the same brain chemistry that is affected by storytelling. I had a great uh, writing coach, Jack Hart, tell me one time. He said, Kanzano, make them laugh, make them cry, but first make them wait. Because there's a payoff you get as a listener to this show when I'm telling a story that may transcend what you're actually hearing. It has something to do with brain chemistry. That's why we like reading stories. It's like that's why we the to be continued at the end of a of a sitcom is uh, you know simultaneously oh and we have to wait till next week and then you wait until next week because you can't wait. You need the payoff in the end. I think these box breaks that they're doing in the sports card world are lit up and lined up for that. Jordan Schultz joining us. Schultzescardpools.com. He's going to tell us what a box break is. Schultze, what's going on, man? John, good to be on with you. I really appreciate it. It is a pleasure and an absolute privilege, my friend. All right, let's talk about what happened at this event because you were on stage and you were doing a box break. First of all, for listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, how do you explain a box break to, like, your neighbor who has no idea what, what we're talking about? Yeah, so essentially, I'm in a box break involving sports cards and collectibles and chances at big items. That's kind of the draw right there, the chance at a big item for a smaller cost. Uh, you've got normal boxes of sports cards that have been being printed since, uh, I mean, everybody can remember, um, but they're getting really expensive nowadays. I mean, we're talking, I know you've mentioned four, five, six hundred $600. There's even some that people want to regularly open that cost $1,500 or more, so Essentially, a box break, uh, instead of paying $1,500 yourself for that box, it kind of uh, alleviates the cost, and it, it's a gamble either way. It's a chance at pulling a big card or pulling nothing, whether or not you open you know, a couple of packs in the box or the whole box. So what the box break essentially does is kind of splits the cost up and makes the gamble a little bit cheaper. So instead of opening the whole box yourself, you get randomized a team, a randomized a division, and hoping you get like the New England Patriots, for instance, and draw Mac Jones rookie or Trevor Lawrence for the Jacksonville Jaguars, and so on and so forth, Trey Lance, Justin Fields, all the other big quarterbacks from 2021. So essentially, John, it's just a low-cost chance at a massive, exciting, expensive find, uh, like you said, an autograph or a hologram, all kinds of special finds in card boxes nowadays. It's interesting to me. Why do you think this has popped up? And it seems to have taken a life in the pandemic. Is that coincidental, or is it made for... 
YouTube? Is it made for TikTok where, where people, I guess, we were at home and isolated and suddenly we wanted to watch a break happen? Yeah, John, you mentioned YouTube and TikTok with social media. I'm not sure this resurgence of sports cards and breaking cards, you know, with that immediate reaction and the immediate follow-through on whether you're going to get something or not. I don't think we would have seen that if the pandemic happened like 10, 15 years ago because the, like I say, the immediacy and the availability now, you've basically got people doing these sports card breaks on all these platforms all the time. I mean, I'm pretty sure you could find something going at like two, three, four in the morning, if you're that much of a degenerate. And for me, it was pretty much the pandemic, uh, along with everybody kind of just not really having much to do. Uh, you mentioned a lot of guys uh, after this weekend at the World of Sports event going back into, into their collections that hadn't really looked at them in a while after seeing this sports card show there and these breaks. That's kind of what I did, John. I, I was uh, trying to figure out some things to do with my spare time and saw people opening these boxes on social media. And it encouraged me to try and use my skills and have some fun and do that myself. And uh, it's kind of taken it and grown it to doing breaks as well as trying to help people get cards as cheap as possible. My brother was not in town. He was not able to make the event, but he saw it on social media and he texted me and he said, you guys are making me go into my cards and look at what I have. And I think that a lot of that happened. Uh, what have you seen in the sports memorabilia trading card market Let's first start with older vintage cards, Schultze. What have you seen in maybe the last couple of years? Yeah, the older ones, I mean, you're obviously talking like uh, the Hannes Wagner T206, which uh, even if you're not a sports card fan, you've seen the picture of that old, like, cigarette card pack. It's kind of a smaller kind of center card. Uh, essentially, you're going back into the millions of dollars of value for bigger cards uh, and super rare cards like that. There's a 1952 Mickey Mantle. Uh, that's, I think, just sold. The last one sold for over 2 or $3 million at auction. Um, and then Michael Jordan rookie cards, they go for anywhere. If, if it's in gem mint condition, which you call, gem mint is essentially the best possible graded condition, uh, which is graded is essentially certified and authenticated that it could be in. We're talking 500000 to a $1 million. But, you know, with the recession, uh, the last few months, a lot of people, even big investors, not necessarily looking um, at cards as investments or maybe taking out some of their investments uh, to put into things like eggs and put gas in the car. But there is still super, super high valuable numbers on those vintage cards. All right. Help us understand what we're seeing in this new shiny refractor limited edition signed one of four, uh, you know, sort of what is going on right now with the new stuff we all see out. Yeah, John, actually it's a perfect transition that you asked from vintage into kind of current day sports cards because uh, there's this time that um, if you are a sports card fan, you know about this. It's called the junk wax era. And essentially that's a period of time from the mid eighties or so into about the mid to late nineties where these companies just started thinking they were printing money and just made sports cards and never stopped the printing uh, presses for years on end. All those rookies that you thought were super rare weren't rare and essentially from that these companies tried to take uh, ideas from the worst side of the hobby and seeing all those cards uh, go basically to zero in value and try to add some kind of extra valuable you know card that you could get in these boxes so that's kind of where these numbered cards john these these hologram parallels these different colored parallels these special autographs uh, that's kind of where we saw that start to come out into what we see in sports cards today. And it's not like you can just go in and find like a Tom Brady autograph in every box. I mean, 
it is still kind of that draw with those super rare names. It, it, it really is that extra spicy card that you can pull. And, and like with a Tom Brady auto in every box, it's just kind of standard. You got like maybe five of those. And that's, that's like out of millions of boxes. And then even outside the big three sports, you got guys like Tiger Woods, his rookie card in golf. It's an upper deck rookie card. I think uh, just in a sleeve, it's worth like 30 to 40 bucks still. So, so there's, there's value beyond the big three sports. There's value in hockey, golf, golf and soccer as well. Jordan Schultz with us, SchultzesCardPools.com. All right, when you've opened boxes, what's the most valuable card you've ever pulled out of a pack? Ooh, it was, so this was a super lucky pull for me, John. It was maybe three or four months after I got back into the hobby uh, in 2020 during the pandemic. He's a prospect now for the New York Yankees, and a lot of people are comparing him to Mike Trout. It was an Anthony Volpe um, it was one of those colored parallel autograph cards that you're talking about. It was an orange parallel, and it was uh, numbered. There were only 25 of those cards in existence. And uh, unfortunately, I'm hoping that I don't hate myself too much in a few years because I sold that for about five, 600 bucks because I just wanted the immediate cash. Uh, Anthony Volpe, uh, like I said, he's been having some trout comparisons being thrown out there about him. It, there's nowhere, nowhere near that status as of yet, but even those comparisons, and this is what the sports market does, um, those comparisons raise the guy's price right up. So that car that I sold a year and a half ago, I think, is sitting at like a four or $5,000 value clip right now. So I'm hating myself at the moment. Nah, I mean, look, it's, it's part of the business, right? It's part of the game. Why did you get into this? Do you get in for the money? Do you get in it for the collecting, the adrenaline rush? What, what, what's in it for you? I think all of those. The, mostly it was the nostalgia at first just kind of remembering what I'd done with my dad. I mean, we used to go all the time, John. I, I, I don't know if you remember those old Blazers uh, packs of cards and, like, friends, friends uh, loaves of bread. And uh, my dad and I would just go down, and, and as soon as they would hand the expired loaves of bread back to the uh, distributor, we'd go down to local friends and grab all those loaves for a buck and grab all those cards and then head down to the local card shop. So it was honestly just the nostalgia from that. Um, and then just into my love of sports and my passion for fun and entertainment. And I, I truly think that you just like kind of sports betting uh, and fantasy sports, how we've seen those kind of kind of grow from maybe down in the basement or from a section of sports fans participating in those, coming into the mainstream, being covered with sports, being a part of everyday life in sports. I truly think sports cards will go that direction, especially, John, after we saw this event and, and how much fun you had up on stage at the World of Sport. I, I think – I think it's going places for sure. Jordan, let me ask you too, because there are a lot of people out there that go, hey, you know, I can't afford to buy a two or $300 box of cards, uh, or maybe their kid is just wanting to get into collecting. Uh, I, what yeah. do you do? What do you do as a parent? You got a kid, eight-year-old kid who wants to get into this stuff, and you want to dabble a little bit. Where, do you, where are you buying cards, and, and what are you recommending? Yeah, John, that's the cool thing about the hobby is there are price points for everybody. They've got hobby boxes, but they've also got uh, – there's kind of two different uh, uh, categories, hobby boxes and then retail boxes. And these retail boxes are a lot cheaper, and they're ones that you can actually go find in person at stores like Target and Walmart. I mean, you could go pop in, I think, even places like Barnes & Noble here locally, check your local Buy Marts, some Walgreens. I mean, so, John, there, there are cards – uh, for kids accessible at a lot of these places. I know there were just a couple of different baseball releases put out in the past month, and at the Walmart that I was at just earlier today, 
there were tons of boxes on the shelf, and they were twenty nine ninety nine a box. So, mm. you know, it, it's a tenth of the cost, and I think that's a perfect way to get a kid interested in the hobby. And honestly, that's one of the things that I, I try to do and is my main philosophy and really why I do what I do. I want to help people get access to this hobby. I want those people that can't afford those two $300 boxes to be there to buy not just the baseball cards, you know, but football, basketball, the, the really premium cards that everybody's trying to find and can't find. That's kind of one of the reasons the hobby is so popular is because of the scarcity right now. Jordan Schultz, I appreciate you. Thanks for doing what you do. You. Uh, how do people find your YouTube channel? I appreciate you, John. This has been an absolute pleasure. And you can go on YouTube. Just search. Uh, I think Schultz will get you there. But if you S-C-H-U-L-T-Z-Y, Schultz should pop up Schultz's card polls. And I actually just uh, before this interview started, I posted, I've got some breaks going on on my channel here this Sunday, John. So I appreciate you plugging the website. If you go to SchultzCardPolls.com, you'll be able to buy into actually a couple of the boxes that we broke this weekend together. I'm going to be including in my breaks this Sunday as well. All right, so when you say buy into, help people understand, because what they're doing is they're buying a place in line, so to speak. You open the, you open the uh, pack, and then uh, you open the box, you open the pack, and you know maybe they're getting, what, card two, card three? They're basically buying a seat at, at this thing and hoping that the lucky card coincides with their seat. Exactly. There's three ways to do it. There's like a, a hit or a seat, so you get like one card per person. There is usually... Uh, you do it by, like, teams, so that's kind of the way that you divvy up the cost is, like, I pay for a random team, and then we kind of just run it through, you know, a chance uh, randomizer online, and then everybody gets assigned, like, a specific team. So that's kind of the that's kind of what the box break is. It alleviates it, that cost, and buying in, you get a chance at any of those teams. You could get a great team. You could get a terrible team. Love it. Schultz, I appreciate you. Thanks for joining us. Hope to talk soon, John. Thank you so much. There he is, Schultz's card pulls on YouTube. I have to tell you, he was opening the packs. He wasn't even getting the cards, this Jordan Schultz character. They weren't going to stay with him. Somebody in the crowd was going to get the card. What they had were 100 seats that were numbered 1 to 100, and uh, there was a random number picked out of, a, out of like a bingo, uh, bingo drawing. Okay, it's seat 42. And then, you know, there's an eight-year-old kid sitting in seat 42 in the crowd who suddenly lights up because he's going to get the card. And then I look over at Schultz, and he's got like a vein on the side of his neck popping out. He's so excited. He starts, yelling, you know, saying, it's a Luka Doncic, you know, and he starts naming, you know, refractor this, one of four, you know, I don't know. But he was so excited about it, his enthusiasm. There's something about, I don't think it even matters. There's something about seeing someone... Do something they're passionate about. You know, even if, it, if it's somebody talking about chess, if they're passionate about chess, I'll, I'll listen to it because that's what people want. We want to hear what, what, what your passion is, that thing that you're ex into and that you're excited about, whether it's your team like the Ducks, the Beavers, the Blazers, the Winterhawks, whoever, the Timbers, or, or whether it's your hobby. I think it's fascinating. I'm not into the card break world. But I don't blame you if you are, because I understand there was a lot of enthusiasm about this. And the dude has like 15,000 subscribers on his YouTube channel. It's, uh, it's, he's on to something. He's found the thing that he should be doing. Like, I hope you found your thing as well. I want you to leave it here. Anna's going to pop into the studio next. We'll play some Punch It audio. You got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network.
Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Kind of a sad story today in the news. Caleb Swanigan, former trailblazer, dead at the age of 25 today. Uh, he was a guy, obviously 25, way, way too young. Uh, they said natural causes. Uh, I saw the news. We had all seen Swanigan maybe have issues uh, towards the end of his playing career and gaining weight and and whatnot, but, uh, you know, I think we're going to find out more about this Swanigan thing uh, later down the road, but, man, I know when the, the Blazers picked him, I had somebody who knew him well who said, you know, Blazer fans are going to love this guy. Uh, the Purdue family is devastated. He uh, was in Fort Wayne, Indiana. The Allen County Coroner's Office in Fort Wayne uh, has determined he died of natural causes. At the age of 25. Anna, natural causes. You're a television news reporter, investigative reporter. I see a guy dying at 25, and I want to know more. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I think when I see that is it's just not uh, natural, right, for people to die at 25. So I am curious to see what that is. And in Newspeak, that simply means that there was no foul play, they're trying to indicate that the, that wasn't like a, you know, there yeah. wasn't a substance involved and not a suicide, like he wasn't taking his own life. So, yeah, much more to be learned on that. His one. story, he had lived in five homeless shelters when he was a kid. He had uh, attended a dozen different schools by the age of 13. Uh, he grew up with nothing. And I know when he was drafted, uh, we had on the show – uh, one of the individuals in that community in Indiana where he grew up um, who had sort of taken him under his wing. I think it was a high, ex-high school coach. But Caleb Swanigan dead at the age of 25. Peter Sampson, I, I got to be honest, like 25 is way too young, but we also knew that Swanigan was struggling a little bit uh, post-NBA career. Yeah, my, I mean, not to say it's it's – a relief that it was, you know, so-called natural causes. But if you saw kind of what he was going through on social media, I believe that was last season, maybe 18 months ago, uh, he, he was clearly struggling and he wasn't doing well, uh, you know, and it, it, mentally. he it, it was kind of a disturbing to see publicly. So, uh, you know, he kind of kept a low profile. I know he got, he got arrested a few months ago, and he had clearly had issues with his weight, you know, and I mean, especially at six yeah. foot nine. I wonder if natural cause, causes is not to speculate, you know, but it, it, I'm sure his heart, that's a lot of strain on a big guy. And it's his story was so seemingly inspirational, and I guess you can still look at it and know that it is, but I mean, he, this is a guy that had been through so much and it just goes to show, you know, you can have success on the outside, but you know, if you've got these things that are, that are part of you, you, a lot of times you just can't outrun them. His father weighed more than 500 pounds. His father uh, used drugs, had diabetes and had health issues. Um, you have, uh, Caleb Swanigan in that mug shot, tremendous weight gain there. Do we have a sense of what he weighed there? Uh, I had heard about a year ago that it was uh, about 400, and then there was someone that it was close to the family I saw that said it was probably 500. Because if you consider that he's yeah. six foot nine with that too, yeah, he it, it wasn't healthy. 
When he was in eighth grade, he was 6'2", 360. Wow. So he had battled weight and probably some genetics, but he had battled weight um, for most of his life. And obviously, uh, this became an issue for Caleb Swanigan. And look, we don't know. We don't know what he had been through. A lot of people struggled with mental wellness and health during the pandemic. I mean, I think I've shared on this show, like when we didn't have games, I would come on this show and I was banging the drum and I, I was feel there were some days where I was flat, you know, and, and I, I can't imagine people who were maybe predisposed or maybe even had bat battled mental uh, health or weight problems prior to the pandemic, what it could sort of, uh, you know, it would sort of amplify the issue, would it not? Yeah, and I don't think that that's necessarily over. I mean, I think that um, many of us are still trying to emerge from all of that, and we're trying to find the new normal and maybe habits that were developed during the pandemic really that weren't healthy have not yet been dropped. So it's like if you need help, if you need to reach out to somebody, just talk to somebody, you know, uh, get moving, get active, do something physical in the course of your day because that can really help your state of mind and just don't do not do it alone. Caleb Swanigan's nickname in eighth grade was Biggie. Yeah. And they called him Biggie all through high school and even into the NBA. He did an interview in 2017 on ESPN where he talked about food insecurity and he, you know, he'd been homeless, right? He had gone from homeless shelter to homeless shelter. And so he said, um, one meal won't kill you, but then it becomes three or four meals in a row that are bad. Then it starts to hurt your body. Uh, when he had basketball and the structure of basketball, I think he had a better handle on his eating, his diet, his exercise, nutrition. I mean, you know, we heard it over the weekend and as part of the panel discussions at Worlds of Sport, the Anthony Newman, former NFL player, Alex Molden, former NFL player, they sort of talked about the structure of the NFL. When you are in season, in camp, your day, your week, your season is broken into segments. Hey, this is what time the meeting is. This is what we're doing on Tuesday. This is the game time. This is when the bus leaves. You know, they have control of you. And so it, the problems for players often happen in the off season when they don't have the regiment or after retirement when they don't know what to do. And Caleb Swanigan was a first-round NBA draft pick of the Trailblazers, uh, lost the structure of basketball when he was no longer able to play. Well, and look at the story about Delonte West that's out right now. Um, he was seen panhandling in the streets of Virginia. Hmm. That video was shared by a fan last week. He's since said that, you know, I'm not homeless. I'm just between jobs and you know, I got to do what I can for my babies, but this is also somebody who has struggled after his NBA career. He's battled mental health and addiction issues, and, you know, if you've seen the video of him, he clearly looks disheveled, and, you know, he's he's not doing great right now. So I really have a heart for these players because when the, you're right, when they do lose that structure of being in the system of professional sports, um, a lot of times it depends on their family of origin and where they came from and what they had going on before they entered said professional league. You I've, know? I've heard it over and over from college coaches in particular. They'll say things like, so-and-so needs football, needs basketball. And what they're talking about is without the structure and accountability of the sport 
or being in a program that sort of puts its arms around you and takes care of you and teaches you discipline and gives you some structure, a lot of people drift. And I think I do think the last couple of years have has done that to civilians at a greater uh, at a greater impact than maybe before that because people who were having to get up, take care of themselves, eat right, get to the office, go to work, have a job, suddenly we're at home, and everybody's like, "Don't come into the office. Don't have that structure." I talked to a whole bunch of people who were like, "You know, I'm having a hard time getting dressed." You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like I I think a lot of that happened, and I do think. Over time, it impacts you. It does. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I learned a lot, too, this weekend at Worlds of Sport from Jaden Grant, the team captain of the Oregon State Beavers football team. We were having the discussion on stage about name image likeness, and we asked him, like, what is that like in the locker room? What is that dynamic between players who get big deals and the players who don't? And, you know the accusation maybe or the idea that some players are like selling out to certain brands and his response was so interesting to me because it came from a player's perspective and he's like you know I would never judge anybody for the deals that they do who they choose to represent or whatever because he's he pointed out you just don't know what situation people are coming from you don't know if they're taking that money from an NIL deal and giving it back to their family to help you know, feed them and cover the bills at home. The truth is the vast majority of those NIL deals are modest. They're $250, $500. I think the average deal, if you throw out Jade Carey at Oregon State, you throw out Kayvon Thibodeau at Oregon, the average deal is under $1,000 per NIL deal, which is really the spirit of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But And that's not going to cause a problem in the locker room. The problem in the locker room is going to happen when – Somebody like at USC, Caleb Williams comes in to play quarterback. If you had brought him into an established locker room and paid him seven figures and he's beating out somebody who's a real leader on the team in the locker room, then I think you're going to have a division, a potential division in your locker room. That's where I think the coaches have to be careful. The boosters all want to buy players. As Nick Saban said, they want to walk around, puff the chest out, and say, I helped get that player here. (laughs) Uh, But I think most of the time – the players will understand, like, you know, Jaden Grant, let's just say he's got an endorsement with Jamba Juice, okay? Uh, I think most of the players on the team are not going to begrudge him for benefiting that way. Mm -hmm. But let's just say Oregon State goes out, gets a new safety in the transfer portal, and the safety comes in and is getting seven figures from, you know, some outside entity, it could cause some problems could cause some locker room issues. Yeah, it's a fascinating dynamic. So I think it's good to a certain extent. But I think you're right, too, about not knowing what's going on in the lives of people, players, your neighbors. You don't know. That's why you got to be nice to each other. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, if you want to read me, you got to read me at johnconzano.com. That's the only place you can read my columns now, exclusively at johnconzano.com. Uh, if you uh, sign up now, you can subscribe there at johnconzano.com. You get them delivered 
every morning to your email inbox. Decide for yourself what level of subscription works for you. There's free subscriptions. There's paid subscriptions. There's VIP subscriptions. Uh, but go to johnconzano.com and you can read me. I wrote today about George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 Conference Commissioner. Uh, talked to him over the weekend for about a half hour and had a really good conversation about his first year on the job. And I wrote it, and you can read all about it there. But, Anna, I want to talk about this. Uh, first and foremost, I think what George Klyovkov brings to the conference is somebody who is advocating scrapping and fighting on behalf of the conference. And I think he has been really smart to sort of be the anti-Larry Scott. Without saying I'm going to be the anti-Larry Scott, I can just I look at what he's doing and he just checks some boxes. He spent a whole bunch of time this first year visiting the respective college campuses. I think because he wanted to connect with them, but I also think because he knew one of the great criticisms of Larry Scott was that he was so arrogant that he would fly in on a chartered plane at, you know, 3 p.m. on a game day and he'd leave at halftime. And Washington State, I know, I was, at a, I was at a game in Pullman at Washington State where Larry Scott showed up at halftime and he did a little talk because he made it, his, he made it a, a, a point of emphasis every football season that he would be at every stadium at least once. <laughs> well, he only watched two quarters of a football game at Washington State. Okay? And, okay, and this is, this is kind of inside, inside. Okay, so I'm at this game. Yeah. And Larry Scott, the Pac-12 commissioner, they, they'll always tell you, hey, Larry Scott's going to be here today, and he'll address the media at halftime. Uh -huh. And he was with this guy named Dave Hirsch, who is a longtime media relations uh, director for the Pac-12. Mm -hmm. He was with the conference for like 15, 20 years, maybe longer. Yeah. So Hirsch was with Larry Scott. Mm -hmm. They flew in together on Scott's chartered plane. Right. So Scott leaves the Bay Area on a chartered plane, flies to Pullman on game day, Gets in around 3 o'clock. The game's kicking at like 5. And I see Hirsch in the press box, who I've known a long time. I say mm -hmm. hi to him. And then Larry Scott talks at halftime, and he leaves. And I look around in the press box. Hirsch is still there. <laughs> I said, didn't you, guys, didn't you leave? He said, no, I'm going to stay and fly back. He was going to fly back on a commercial flight. Yeah. I said, the commissioner took off? And he's like, oh, no, no, he has some things to do or whatever. Well, it turned out. Trying to cover for him? Oh, yeah, he was trying to. He was, I mean, look, <laughs> he was being a good soldier, yeah. good lieutenant. Yeah. But the truth was, Larry Scott flew in, watched two quarters of football, showed face at halftime, and then left. And how do you think people in Pullman at Washington State feel <laughs> when they realize the commissioner didn't want to spend any more time than he absolutely had to at your university? It's so strange to me. It's so strange. It's arrogant. It's like if you made the effort to go there, you couldn't stay for all four quarters. I tracked his flight after that game because I had the tail feathers or tail, tail, tail feathers. feathers. I had the tail numbers. You had the tail feathers. I had the on tail the plane? feathers of that plane in my pocket. No, that was some plane. I had. He rode on the back of a condor. No, he. Uh, he. I had the tail numbers of the plane. Yeah. So I it was in the press box and I was tracking Larry Scott's plane. Mm -hmm. He landed, you know, because Oregon was playing Washington State. That Oregon, was the, that, the Oregon Washington Ducks. State. Yeah, yeah. yeah, He landed back in the Bay Area. The game wasn't even over yet. <laughs> That's how fast he got back to the Bay Area. And now I know people at Washington State. I know it bothered them. Yeah. They told me it bothered them. Of course. He wouldn't spend time here. <laughs> he doesn't love us. Yeah. 
He doesn't love all of his children equally, so to speak. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, because his kid was going to USC, Larry right. Scott's kid. Right. So he spent lots of time at USC, mm-hmm. and he spent lots of time at UCLA. He spent time at Oregon. And I noticed he spent time at Arizona State. So I started paying attention to, like, where did he spend time? Well, it turns out Mm -hmm. he was spending time on the campuses of the presidents that he really needed to cultivate Mm -hmm. and keep in his corner. Yeah. And then he was basically going to Washington State and Washington and Oregon State and some others and going, got no time for you. Mm -hmm. So Klyovkov told me over the weekend he said, I don't think people understand how much traveling I've done in the last year. Yeah. Because I said, what, what do people not understand about your job? And he said, the travel. He said, I have been on every campus. He was at the rowing championships. Mm-hmm. He was at the track and field championships. He was at the baseball tournament. <laughs> he was at the vo- the water polo tournament. Like, he kept popping up like mm-hmm. Flat Stanley. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> He's the Flat Stanley yeah. of the Pac-12. It was... Uh, <laughs> It was remarkable. Where in the world is George Klyovkov now? But that's intentional, isn't it? Like, it's visible. Oh, yeah. See me. I'm yeah. going to – and he told me, he said, I'm going to spend the night in Pullman. And, oh, by the way – Oh, he made a point of yeah. telling you that. It, yeah. And he said, oh, by the way, I'm traveling on Southwest Airlines. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was uh, – He knows what he's doing. He knows damn well what he's doing. But, I mean, so, uh, you know, let's not dwell too much on the past. A little but- bit. I like to dwell a little bit. I say that, but now I want to delve into the past of George Klavkov because what gives me hope about him being, you know, the quintessential leader of this conference is his background. Because he not only has the background in entertainment, mm-hmm. so he worked at Hulu, yep, and he worked at Hearst Entertainment, yep, but he's got and, and NBC Universal actually, yeah, but he's got the background combined with sports. So he was an executive VP in business uh, in the MLB, yeah. Uh, he worked for the WNBA, so it's like. I'm sure when they were looking around and they were trying to find the next person, I don't know who else was necessarily in the running, but that combined with, you know, his background as the president of entertainment and sports at MGM Resorts. I mean, I that combination of experiences really sets the conference up to be a powerhouse, I think, in the next two, three, four, five years. The headhunter who contacted him for the job, I am told – by a source, had contacted him previously for other jobs outside of MGM Entertainment, not the Pac-12. So in that world that he is running in, uh, these executives are in high demand. So the headhunter had reached out to him before and said, hey, do you want to go to work for this other company? And he had said, no, I'm happy at MGM. I'm happy. I'm Mm -hmm. happy. The headhunter reached out to him about the Pac-12 job and said, hey, don't say no right away. This is really interesting. And went into uh, sort of, you know, what a mess it was, the chaos of the Pac-12. But you look at Klyovkov. He was at NBC Universal. When Hulu is launched, he's part of the launch of Hulu. Mm -hmm. He said to me they had a problem in that space. Remember when we were all watching regular TV? (laughs) And yeah. then we were going to video rental stores. Yes. Remember those days? Uh-huh. You yeah. remember going into the video rental store? Yeah. We used to have to go in. My Power parents, records. Yeah. My parents would, we'd go into like <laughs> Blockbuster, USA Video, Hollywood Video, whatever it was. Yeah. And my parents would say to us four kids, you have to pick one movie and agree on it. I mean, it was hell. <laughs> right. It was like a, it was like a locked jury, a hung jury. <laughs> so, Klyovkov says they, they launch Hulu with the idea that, all of these 
content companies were having their content ripped off and put on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And they were like, how do we monetize this? And everybody was busy thinking for themselves. Like Paramount was thinking for itself and, you know, uh, HBO was thinking it for itself mm -hmm. and, you know, NBC was thinking for itself. Sure. Everybody was not thinking about the competition. Yeah. What Hulu tried to do and the problem Hulu solved is Hulu got them to all together mm -hmm. and said, look, you have a common problem. Yeah. You're all getting ripped off. None of you are monetizing your own content. Right. So they create Hulu. They bring everybody into the fold and solve a problem. That's why I think Hulu's been, you know, relatively successful. Like it, it, it addressed a problem of, you know, hey, we got to get our content off YouTube and get it into the hands of, of uh, you know, where we can monetize it. So I'm kind of thinking there's a parallel here with college sports. Mm -hmm. Think about this. You can have the Power Fives. They're all disjointed in thinking about themselves. Mm -hmm. The SEC out for itself. Yeah. Big Ten, Pac-12, everybody thinking for themselves. What happened when Klyovkov came in? Immediately the alliance got formed. Big Ten, Pac-12, ACC got together, yeah. formed an alliance. It's not unlike what Hulu was doing. Yeah. So he also pointed out to me, and it's in the piece if you want to read it at johnconzano.com, but in much more detail. But he pointed out to me that like they're at a crossroads in college athletics where they either have to go off and uh, decide that they're going to you know, have a free market, mm-hmm, they, you know, it's going to be a free market, and we're not going to worry about subsidizing Division Two or Division Three or even the lower levels of Division One football. Mm -hmm. So that the top tier of Division One athletics subsidizes the lower tier of Division One athletics, Division Two and Division Three athletics, to the tune of seven hundred million dollars a year. Okay, it's a subsidy. Yeah. So you're having that. So either you're doing a free market. Or you're doing a subsidy market, like you're not going to subsidize each other, mm -hmm. and you're going to say, "Hey, let's try to let's shoot for parity, even though we're never going to get parity." So that's what the NCAA has tried to do over these years: is hang on to parity and like a level playing field, and you know, women's athletics and Title IX, mm -hmm. and but uh, Klyovka is saying like the presidents and the chancellors are going to have to make a decision at some point whether they go fully for uh, the subsidization model. And they try to maintain kind of the integrity of a level playing field and everybody having a chance to win. Or they're going to have to splinter off the Power Five and go, look, you, these major colleges are playing a different game. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. Go out on the open market, get as much money as you can, and keep it for yourself. Or maybe some blend of the two. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, the other thing that's interesting, Larry Scott leaves the Pac-12 conference. Of the Power Five conferences, four of the five conference commissioners have now left in the mm -hmm. last three years. Now the head of the NCAA, Mark Emmert, is out as well. He's a major player too. So you have, I think, like a historic moment to sort of remake major college athletics. What do you think it ends up looking like? I don't know, but I think what he recognizes is that entities can be stronger together. He has the ability to pull people together and point out the common ground that they have uh, in, a, in the way that, like, an effective politician might, you know. And so, you know, that'll be curious to see how that yeah. develops. And, you know, but we're not really here to be, like, his cheerleader either. No. Like, no. I, I think it's important for us to remain highly critical of 
the decisions that he makes and what he's pushing for leading forward, like what are going to be the hallmarks of success or failure that you see that he can accomplish in the next five years? The meteorites deal coming down the pipeline here in the short term. And I, and I, I want to point this out. Like if he face plants on that, it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. Like his legacy will be affected by that. Mm -hmm. But so far it's year one. July 1st is one year on the job for him. I think his first year has been a home run. Yeah. I mean, like he, he has galvanized the conference. He casts a figure up top that is um, positive and smart and looks like, you know, he, he could, he's not ahead of the curve because the conference isn't, yeah. but he could get there. Mm -hmm. Like he's smart. He's competent enough to get there. And, but I also think if he doesn't get media rights correct, it damages his brand immediately. And correct defined how? They need wide distribution. Okay. They need to probably, and I think this is what he he sort of alluded to this. Uh, I think they're going to take the best college football games they have, their tier one media rights. They're going to keep them on ESPN, ABC, Fox, CBS. You're going to see those mm -hmm. on regular TV. The rest, the Pac-12 network content, I expect it's going to end up on Apple as an app. I, I think he needs distribution, and he needs to maximize revenue. He needs to catch up to the Big Ten and the SEC. They're, the Pac-12 is woefully behind when it comes to revenue and distribution. So those two factors, you need the blend of wide distribution and maximum revenue. And if he doesn't get revenue and distribution, it's going to be a fail. But I think he's well-positioned. He's the right guy to have the negotiation. Yeah, he certainly has the breadth of experience. To and that and he's got the leadership tools. All right, leave it here. you got the BFT. Anna was out at field day today at the elementary school that our kids attend. <laughs> what, is that? what was that like? What's a field day like? By the way, the kids were disappointed that I didn't go, but they told me I made the, I made the school sizzle reel. Did this you know this? Sizzle reel. That's a term we didn't even know Did until you know last this? week. Well, I'm going to use that like term. You're breaking that out like it's just part of your normal vernacular. Yeah, <laughs> get the sizzle reel. Uh, they, <laughs> apparently, they did a year-end video. Yeah. Where they that they showed to the whole school. Uh-huh. And yours truly was featured running yeah. on the video. Probably long strided, probably looked a little like Usain Bolt, but I was at the school <laughs> uh, the school jogathon running alongside some of the kindergartners. Uh-huh. And uh uh Sojourner, our youngest, said, Dad, the whole school saw you running. <laughs> and I, she seemed very proud of that. That's oh, funny. Well, field day was great because it's the first time in I I think it's like three years that they've been able to have it and it's a tradition, and uh, so it was awesome. You know me, I mean I love watching kids just get, being active and athletic and working together in teams and having fun. Somehow I was in charge of the water bucket station, mm. and they had this station where it was like the kids had to run. And take a giant sponge, soak it with water out of a giant yellow bucket, and then collectively fill a smaller oh, pail of water by draining the sponge. Seems like a lot of work. It was a lot of water and uh, a lot of refilling of water and a lot of hilarity. So was it, it was warm enough for that? Not really. No. Not at that time of the morning. So, um, you know, that's fine. Do you think there's something wrong with people in the Pacific Northwest? What? Because we... Uh, 
No, we're perfect. Why? No, because like it, okay, on. yesterday it was kind of breezy, but it was, <laughs> but at least it was sunny and breezy. Yeah, it was cooler yesterday. Okay. It's gonna be warmer later in the week. Sure, but we all went outside. Yeah. Dining al fresco, yeah. barbecuing. Yeah. Like, like, we all just crawl out of the hole. No. And like, you know, we've been in there for a couple months. You mean <laughs> you the know? fact that it hits like 57 degrees, the shirts come off, and the convertible tops <laughs> go down, that kind of thing? Yes, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. Nothing wrong with that, John. That's just who we are. I'm just, that's exactly what I'm talking about. But. <laughs> also, how we have a three-degree like range in which we're comfortable. It's like between 73 and 76 degrees, and outside of that, we're either too hot or too cold because we're spoiled. It was 68. It hit 68 today, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, it's hot." Yeah. You know, <laughs> we're wimps. I think we become acclimated, <laughs> is what it is. All right, the five at five is coming up. You're gonna hear great sound. And the five best things going on. Plus, Draymond Green with some wisdom. All of that still ahead on the Bald Face Truth. B-F-F-T. Here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. We're going to catch you up on everything that is happening in sports and a whole bunch more. Coming up this hour, right out of the gates, we got a retirement for the second time. We got uh, an elimination game in the works in the College World Series. Deshaun Watson settled some lawsuits. We'll tell you more about it. Plus, another defection on the PGA Tour. All of that and more. Part of Punch It Audio. We do, excuse me, Punch It Audio. The five kind of sort of important things coming up at five o'clock. We got it right here. The five at five. Well, let's start with Gronk. Tampa Bay Buccaneers tight end Rob Gronkowski is retiring for the second time. It's calling it a career. He's 33 for crying out loud. He's had enough. He thanked the Buccaneers for the amazing ride, said it's time. He said in college he was asked to write about his dream job, where it would be, what he would do. He wrote that he wanted to play for Tampa in the NFL, sunny weather being the number one reason, by the way. He said he forgot about writing this report until two years ago when he had the chance to join the Buccaneers. I also think maybe... The violent nature of football could have caused him to maybe forget about his book report. Look, I also wouldn't be surprised if Tom Brady calls him during the uh, season to try to get him to come back, and Gronk comes back. He feels highly impressionable to me. But Rob Gronkowski is calling it quits for now. Why, Why do we have to do that in this era? You know what I mean? Why is that? I think we... It's been proven that we can't believe people when they say they're going to retire. Do normal folks apply? Does the same thing happen with normal folks? Like, do we have to, uh, we also have to, when somebody in the real world says, you know, I'm hanging it up, do we also have to go, no, you're not? Once they have the cake, you know, the the party at the office. Yeah. And then they come back. They show back up. Gronk is out. Is what I'm saying. Anna, number two in our five big things at five. Okay, maybe it's because I was around Worlds of Sport all weekend and hanging out with the car dealers and stuff, but this story interested me. Okay. 
Michael Jordan's UNC debut ticket stub okay. is hitting the auction. It's believed to be the only one in existence from his first ever game as a Tar Heel. It's extremely rare. It's supposed to be one of one from the 1981 UNC versus Kansas game. It's tattered and torn. It only has a like a one grading. But because it's the only surviving stub believed to be around since that night, supposedly Heritage Auction says it could go for a lot. All right, so this this ticket stub was probably in like somebody's back pocket, junk drawer, junk drawer, junk drawer for like know? thirty years, and somebody's like, I think I went to that game. I think I saved that ticket stub. Yeah. They finally found it, you know, and then they got it graded. I guess his ticket stubs have been hot in the auction block lately. Earlier this year, yeah. a Bulls stub. From his 84 debut with the Bulls, sold for almost $100,000. I need to start looking through my ticket stubs and yeah, see if I right? have anything worth a damn. I can't believe this is like one of one. They say that, but doesn't somebody else have a stub well, sitting around? They say it because that helps drive the price up. Well, I, 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 yeah, I know. It's premium. I get, it's I, exclusivity. I, I, I get that. But, I get that they say that. But they can say it because the grading company tracks that stuff. They know exactly how many items of that that they have graded sure. it doesn't mean that it's one of one in all of existence yeah, like yeah. a listener of this show's probably heard that and went wait i was at that game right and they're digging through their glove box yeah. now yeah hoping that they find that ticket i was at a lot of games that weren't very good when i was a kid <laughs> i have all those ticket stubs too <laughs> second my second thing but the third thing in the five at five you can count <laughs> caleb swan again Former trailblazer, NBA first-round pick, passed away at the age of 25. He died on Monday night in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Blazers drafted him in 2017. He played three seasons in the NBA. He was Mr. Basketball in the state of Indiana in 2015. Stayed home and played for Purdue. He had a standout college career. He battled weight as a kid. He battled weight post-NBA career. Caleb Swan again, natural causes, says the coroner. Sad, sad report today as Swanigan dead at the age of 25. Number four in our five at five, Anna. So remember when Steph Curry's wife was targeted by a bar in Boston during the finals? Yeah, she couldn't cook. Yes, she's so bad, they put out cook. a sandwich board that said, Aisha Curry can't cook. She is a chef and a cookbook author. That was before Game 4. And he came out at the press conference and wore a shirt that said, Aisha Curry can cook. Yeah. Well, now she's selling shirts that say, Aisha Curry can cook. And people are snatching them up. They're going for $28 a piece. But here's the cool part. She says, all proceeds benefit a charity that helps end childhood hunger. Do you remember Yan Can Cook? Who? Yan Can Cook. He was Martin Yan. He was the guy on TV. They called him. It was Yan Can Cook. Okay. That was, that was the show. It might be before yeah. your time. No, Peter, yeah. do you remember Yan Can Cook? I do not at all. <laughs> Man, what's wrong with you guys? Uh... Listeners, you remember Yan Can Cook. Could make dim sum at home, Anna. Okay. With Yan's help. Yeah. Okay. Just saying. Cool. I, it just reminded me when yeah. you when you said she can cook. Yeah. It reminded me of that. Well, Aisha Curry can cook. Well, I guess. What number are we on? Uh, I don't know, but it's your turn. Is it the fifth one? Yeah. Cause you, how many of you done? I did. I, I did. I did <laughs> one. Two. Then you did one. Is this the hardest part I did of the one. show right now? 
You know what it is? What? I'm rusty. It was the three-day weekend for is that me. What it is? Yeah. You give me four days, I won't even know my name. That's how this works. The fifth thing in our five at five, Brooks Kepka. He becomes the latest defector from the PGA Tour. He's joining LIV Golf. Don't call it live. Call it LIV. It's 54, 54 holes. That's the Roman numeral. Brooks Kepka, four-time major champion. Apparently, they found his price, and he's taken it. That's the news of the day. Everybody's got a price, and uh, the Saudi tournament uh, How much found was it. it. But here's what he said. Here's what he said just a week ago. Okay, he was asked about the LIV tour, and he got all testy about it. I haven't given it that much. I mean, I haven't given it that much thought. Really? I, re I, I mean, I was. I don't understand. I'm trying to focus on the U.S. Open, man. Like, I legitimately don't get it. I'm tired of the conversations. I'm tired of all this stuff. Y'all, like I said, y'all are throwing a black cloud on the U.S. Open. I think that sucks. I actually do feel bad for him for once. Because right. it's, I mean, it's a situation. Like, but, we're here to play and you're talking about some event that happened last week. Well, there's events going to be going on now for the next foreseeable future. I know, but you can't drive a car looking in the rearview mirror, can you? I think you can. <laughs> Yeah. What was the price? Yeah. Do we know? Uh, it's going to be a hundred million or more. Yeah. They're, <laughs> they're saying, uh, yeah, Brooks Kepka, just the latest who's taking the money. I'm so tired of talking about yeah. this. I don't even want. I'm above yeah. it. So you you know what's Till going I'm on there? Not. You know what's going on there is he he didn't want to talk about it because he doesn't have anything to say and he he didn't say anything bad about the LIV tour. But then he, I don't want to talk about it. You're throwing a cloud over this. I mean, I just, I res, you know, here's, here's the thing. I re, you know, the one guy that I respect more than others is Dustin Johnson. Because at least Dustin Johnson said, hey, it's life-changing money. I'm taking it. Yeah. Just be and, real about like, it. Be real about it. Don't be a phony. <laughs> don't be a fakey Bob. Because, like, and it's really interesting to me that the golfers that, the LIV golfers who played in the U.S. Open over the weekend, yeah, they didn't play well. And... I think they're in their heads a little bit about this, and they're probably worried about what's going on or the perception. Like psychologically, like this that may not hold up, but I think it was really interesting. Like Dustin Johnson, Phil Mickelson didn't make the cut. Like they, they just didn't play well as a whole. Oh, they played in the Open. Yeah, they played in the U.S. Oh, okay. Open because it's a major. Okay. Uh, and the PGA can't keep them out of it. Oh. I so see. Uh, now they will be turning their attention to the beautiful golf course out at Pumpkin Ridge. That sold its soul to the Saudis. He's already removed all references to the PGA Tour from his social media profile. Yeah, he was he was done. And let's listen oh. again. Let's listen again. Here's here's <laughs> what what Brooks Kepka said a week ago. Last week, first live event. What do you make of the the current landscape? It seems the two tours are kind of fracturing the game at the top level. Yeah, I mean, obviously they're both. I mean, Liv's trying to make a big push for golf and. Um, Look, I mean, I love my brother. I support him in anything he does. His family, that's, um, I'll always love and support him. So whatever he does, it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm cheering for him. We're going to go to Stephanie here on your left. Why have you decided to stay on the PGA Tour, and is that a permanent decision? I mean, there's been no other option to this point. So uh, where else are you going to go? Live. I mean, uh, as of last week, that's it. I wasn't playing last week. So I'm here. I'm here at the U.S. Open. I'm ready to play 
U.S. Open. So, and I think, I think it kind of sucks too. Y'all are throwing this black cloud over the um, the U.S. Open, and I mean, it's one of my favorite events. And I don't know why you guys keep doing that, but um, you know, the more legs you give it, the more the more you keep talking about it. Well, then sorry to ask another question about it, but uh, not sorry enough not to do that. Um, the in some ways, it seems like they're offering something that would appeal to you. You're a guy who you know, really gets up for the majors, really loves the majors. At the moment, it seems like it would be an opportunity to play less in between the majors and still play the majors. What, is that attractive to you, or do you prefer your current setup? I mean, I can come out here and play as little weeks as I want. I choose my own schedule regardless what tour I play. I come out here, I haven't played. I've played, what, match play Augusta, PGA, and this one, so I can play as little as I want. Do you think he knew? I kind of feel like he did. Yeah. He was in negotiations already. He was, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Wow. Because to listen to that now, knowing, knowing yeah. that he jumped a week late, like a week later, he's gone. It was his statement about, well, there's nothing, you know. Now. 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 Right. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. I, I also think the reporter knew. Don't you? You think? The way she asked the question. Yeah. Sorry, not sorry. No, but she also said, like, are you willing to say? That you know you didn't um, that this that that you know you, that you're not gonna go and yeah. he said there's nothing to talk about mm-hmm. now. Um, mm-hmm. I I want to play uh, a cut from a baseball game. Can I do that for a little bit here? Uh, yeah, can I do can your, I do something? It's your show. Oh, it is. It's, yeah, it's my show, so I can do that. You can pretty much do um, what you want. Okay, so okay. First of all, Peter, can do you want to weigh in on the uh, Kepka thing? Like when you look at that, like. What do you uh, what do you make of his comments from last week, and then the fact that he bolts? Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it. I don't really have anything else to add because listening back, you go, this guy, this was already a done deal. It was the classic when an athlete says, "I'm here." That seems to be the cue that I am not going to be here shortly. And I think he worded things in a way where he doesn't want this negotiation to fall apart. It's interesting that you mentioned the way the question was worded. I think she might have known as well. Yeah. But then he also proceeded to call the people who had joined that tour sellouts. So wouldn't he have known that he also was going to be labeled a sellout? I don't I like, think why would he have come so hard against other players who had joined the and tour? And his own brother. His right, own his brother who had joined yeah. the tour. So yeah. I think that they were negotiating. I think Camp Kepka was negotiating. Um something happened at a baseball game over the weekend. Uh, Graham Ashcraft, who pitches for the Cincinnati Reds, was pitching, and the umpire came out to the mound. Did you see this, Peter? Did you see this this uh, video of the umpire I, wanting I, to look at his hands and his I glove? I did, yes. And the umpire looked at his hands and asked him to take his wedding ring off. What? And Ashcraft, well, I'll let the play-by-play announcer in Cincinnati, if I can play this correctly, give the play-by-play. Well, checked by the umpire for a four and subs as didn't find anything, but on his left hand, you can see the umpire, he's wearing a wedding, wedding band. It's one of the rubberized wedding bands. And mouth to the umpire, since when, as to having to take it off. There was a lot of discussion in the dugout with manager David Bell and others, and we notice now that that wedding band is around his necklace. It's not on his hand. Now, this is all unofficial. This is me just speculating. I believe they had a problem with him wearing a wedding band out. They had a problem with him wearing a wedding band. He ended up putting the rubber wedding band around his chain necklace that was dangling from his neck. 
in between innings. Mm-hmm. But the wedding band was on his glove hand. Yeah. So it's it's inside of his glove already. What's the problem here? Was he taking some kind of foreign substance from his left? Because he's right-handed, right? Yeah, he's right-handed. And he's wearing his wedding, ring, but it's like not a his ring. Silicone ring yeah, on his left hand. So it's not a metal ring. Right, right. It's silicone. Those are pretty. But it's on his left. Athletes. It's on his left hand. Yeah. So. So what's the problem? It's inside the glove, like. You know? Did they think he was reaching into the glove or pulling his hand out and putting some kind of substance on the ball? Or if you took your hand off the glove, you could scuff the ball up with the ring. I don't know. You can't scuff a ball with a silicone ring? I don't know what you can do with a silicone ring. I don't have a silicone ring. You know? Huh. It's like a gasket on his finger, more a or gasket? less. He's got got a gasket. I don't even know what a gasket is. I just know it's It's a term, blow your gasket, but I I don't know what a They wanted him to take the gasket off his finger and put his his on. Googling gasket. Well, you had one in your hands the other day. You had a water bottle, had a little rubber ring, and you put it on there, and it seals the bottle. That's a gasket? That's a gasket. Now you know. Yeah, go ahead and Google it. Peter, tell her what a gasket is. Man, it's anything to a uh, seal. It's a rubber seal. It's imagine yeah. like a washer, but it's made of rubber. Yeah, it's just like a washer. Oh, yeah. That's the term, blow your gasket. That's <laughs> why you come to the show, folks. Just revealing my intelligence on this show moment and, by moment. Isn't that interesting? Like, we all have blind spots yeah. with things we don't know about. Yeah. Like, we all have these quirky little things we don't know about. Yeah. And yours is gasket. Mine is sports. I just learned that today. <laughs> and <laughs> hardware things. <laughs> I just learned that today. There you have it, folks. Uh, Anna didn't know what a gasket was. All right. I'm going to take the kid to boxing. Uh, all right. She's going to take the kid to boxing. We're going to finish the show. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. You got the bald face <laughs> truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. The best and the worst of Draymond Green on display, I thought, as part of the parade, and maybe the last couple of weeks as part of the NBA Finals. We, I think a lot of people have said, when you look at Draymond Green, you're looking at uh, a guy that is ultimately uh, on your side. If he's on your side, you love him. If he's not on your side, you hate him, right? Everybody always says stuff like that. Uh, I I saw a video that was part of the uh, the Triple Threat podcast where he's talking about coaching, and this is what this is the part of Draymond Green that I just I love. He starts talking about the power of a swing pass, simple thing in basketball. Warriors offense, a lot of motion, a lot of ball movement, moves the defense around. Draymond Green at his best. I catch it, I survey, I need to do this. The power of simply catching the ball, swinging it the other way, or catching it in a simple dribble handoff the other way. In your mind, it may look, it may look like nothing's coming out of that because you didn't score right off that immediate action. But what it did was it made the defense change size of the floor. Because as you know, every defense in the NBA is good if you play one side of the floor. It's, when, it's once you start switching sides of the floor, and now all of a sudden the low man is now the strong side corner man, and he gets lost, and the low man who is over there strong side corner forgets to pull in, and he's lost. That's when 
you can really dissect a, a defense and pick them apart. There he is. Peter Sampson, that's the part of Draymond Green I love. Yeah, man, he's a coach in the making. And and again, you know, a lot of the uh the quotes that we get from these great players, it's just these generic generalities and just, well, you know, both teams played hard, not to use that one. And and yeah, we just made shots today. Draymond is analyzing it just like a basketball junkie. That's great. Love it. We're gonna play punch it audio here. I've got all the best sound from all around. Draymond Green uh in the championship parade. Also, C.J. McCollum talking about Kyrie and uh, what could happen with this summer. It's going to be an interesting summer in the NBA. Let's play. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's start with C.J. McCollum on First Take with Stephen A. Smith. C.J. talking about Kyrie Irving. Is he worth the risk anymore? Here's CJ. Punch it. He needs to be comfortable, right? Kate, he needs to be comfortable. At the end of the day, it comes down to those two and it comes down to health. I, I said this earlier today. The Brooklyn Nets, Brooklyn Nets probably would have already won a championship if Kyrie doesn't get hurt, right? Kevin Durant scores you know, 40, 46 points, basically has a triple-double, steps on the they line with a spinning three-pointer. They would have beat Milwaukee. With, even if, without a healthy Kyrie, they still almost beat him. He put the team on his back. So they're that close, right, to getting over the hump and getting you know, to the Eastern Conference Finals. Why would you risk giving up, as you talked about, Stephen A., you call him box office, which is there's levels to this, right? Like That's there's right. good players. He's on that players, level. And he's, and he's on that level. So if he's box yeah. office, we all, we all been to the casino. Summer League's coming up in Vegas. Yeah. You know, I'm a blackjack man myself. Might play a little roulette, too. I'm willing to roll blackjack. the dice if you've got box office look i think it's fool's gold if you're saying that your plan is to roll dice great franchises franchises that win big don't sit around waiting for a 36 to 1 shot to come in cj it's a reason why you play basketball and not roulette professionally i don't like kyrie irving at 36 and a half million dollars plus he wants a four-year extension fully loaded on top of that it's too much I don't think Brooklyn gets there. I think the window is teetering. Look at the Warriors' success. We always talk about teams in sports wanting to improve and then follow a blueprint. If they see another franchise that wins, they go, oh, wait, wait, we could do that. It's happening in the NFL. Everybody's looking at the Rams and how they won a Super Bowl, going, okay, can, can, we, uh, can we trade for a quarterback? Is that the missing piece? The, it's it's not accidental that the Boston Celtics, who drafted well, and the Golden State Warriors, who drafted well, ended up in the NBA Finals. I think it's a Band-Aid, and I think Kyrie is fool's gold. Still, Sham's talking about it. The Nets and Kyrie being at an impasse. Punch it. Um, no, this is there, there, there's no leverage. Play. This is from multiple, multiple sources on the situation from every single angle that you can think of. But, um, you know, okay. Kyrie Irving, after the Nets season ended, he was very vocal as far as his his end desire. His end desire being, you know, returning to Brooklyn. 
planning to be in Brooklyn, and he said, I believe, a month before the season ended, that I don't plan on leaving Kevin. You know, that's I don't plan on leaving seven. I believe is what he said, meaning Kevin Durant. And you know, those those are two guys that signed with Brooklyn together in 2019. They've been attached as far as you know, wanting to play with each other. And I, to my knowledge, that has not changed. Um, and and you know, sources tell me that that still remains the goal at the end of the day. Is that you know. Kyrie Irving has wanted to stay with the Nets, and his goal has been to want to be with Kevin Durant, and and that goal has not changed. But as far as the conversations that have taken place so far in in the talks between um, Kyrie Irving and the Nets and Nets officials, and, and you know he's got a player option decision next week that he has to decide on. But these are more conversations about in general, right? When you're talking about life, when you're talking, is this? the right team for you moving forward in the future, whether that's one year, two year, three year, four year, is this the right team? And the, both sides have reached an impasse in those conversations. Shams talking on the Pat McAfee show. Kyrie Irving is great. He's one of the better or if not best basketball players in the league. But he's a guy that when I talk about team, I don't think about immediately. He's got a $36.9 million player option for next season. He has till June 29th to exercise it. I think what we're seeing here is a negotiating ploy by a player who understands negotiating and probably wants some of the stage. He's not been on the stage. So he was, you know, three years ago he goes with Kevin Durant to Brooklyn. He's played 103 regular season games in that time. The Nets have one playoff series win. They got swept in the opening round this season. I don't see it. I don't feel it. Moving on, Caleb Swanigan, Fox 12 Oregon, reporting the death of a former Trailblazer at the age of 25. Punch it. Into the Fox 12 newsroom, former Portland Trailblazer and Purdue standout Caleb Swanigan has died at the age of 25. Purdue men's basketball posted the news on their Twitter account this morning, writing, quote, the world has lost a gentle soul last night. The coroner would only say that Swanigan died of natural causes and not going into specifics. Uh, the Blazers drafted Swanigan in 2017. He played three seasons in Portland. He battled weight. He battled health. You look at Swanigan's story. It's a sad story. Eleven different elementary schools in his first 12 years was homeless with his family at a young age. His father battled uh, obesity. And Swanigan in the eighth grade was more than 300 pounds. He got in shape for the NBA. He became Indiana basketball, Mr. Indiana basketball. But in the end, I think uh, a lot of demons chasing Caleb Swanigan. I think it's a sad story and a tough one. 25, way too young. Deshaun Watson's lawyer speaking out says uh, he settled 20 of the 24 lawsuits that have been filed against him. Here's Watson talking earlier this month about why people should believe in him. Punch it. I understand that question, and I definitely respect it. But I feel like with this environment coming off the football field, it's hard to answer that question, uh, without, especially without talking to anybody on my legal team. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've been honest and I've been truthful about my stance. Um, and that's, you know, I never forced anyone. I never assaulted anyone. 
So um, that's what, you know, I've, I've been saying it from the beginning, and I'm going to continue to do that and, and until all the facts come out on the legal side. I have to continue to just, you know, go with the process for my legal team and, and um, you know, the court of law. I think Deshaun Watson's made a whole bunch of legal mistakes here. I mean, I, I, I'm not an attorney, but I think I think Watson has been foolish and not – I don't find him believable. Since March 16th, 25 lawsuits have been filed against him. He settled, according to his attorney, all but four of them. One of those that is not settled – is from Ashley Solis, who was the original, the first woman to file a lawsuit against him, and the first to speak publicly and identify herself as a plaintiff. She is not among those who have settled. So two grand juries in Texas have declined to pursue criminal charges against Watson. It's evident here that Camp Watson is trying to get the NFL, the lawsuits, all of this stuff behind him in time to play this NFL season. When you think about it framed by that, it's tough for me to want anything here, to want a resolution here that works in Deshaun Watson's favor. It is. I'm human. I'm sorry. But I just spent, you know, over the weekend, I talked a little bit with Brenda Tracy. And, you know, she's been outspoken in the Deshaun Watson case. You know, I, I'm disappointed in the Cleveland Browns. I'm, I'm disappointed in the NFL. I'm disappointed in Deshaun Watson. And uh, it now appears that he settled 20 of the 24 cases. I'm not sure how that affects his ability to play in the NFL next season. But, you know, you look at Cleveland and the history of the Cleveland Browns franchise and ask yourself this question. We were talking earlier in the show about, you know, all the factors that have to line up to win big. Ownership, GM, coach, players, that congruency of vision. When you involve Deshaun Watson in that vision and you're an owner who's willing to trade for him while he's facing 25 lawsuits make him your quarterback the face of your franchise so to speak uh i just don't see a happy ending here for the cleveland browns leave it here you got the bft back to the bald face truth with john canzano on 750 the game A lot going on in college athletics. I wrote about some of it today. You can read it at johnconzano.com. I've got a piece coming up on a uh, guy who, it's a weird, weird, weird story about a guy who uh, is impersonating a former NFL player. And it's a story that, uh, well, I'll say this. It, there are athletes who get into business. I, I was reading somewhere the other day, like all the businesses that Shaq is involved in. And it's, you know, Shaq isn't involved in a whole bunch of business because he has, like, a sensational business plan or business mind. He's involved in a whole bunch of businesses because he's Shaq. And when he puts his name and his endorsement behind something and his money behind something, um, it means something. Like, you know, Shaq has done really well for himself post-NBA because he's got the resources and he has the team around him to do it. Like, in addition to the fact that I think he's pretty interesting on television, um, Shaquille O'Neal has been a successful business person. But there are people who will invest 
in Shaquille O'Neal's endeavors because he's Shaq. And they go, oh, it's Shaq. He's putting his name behind it. There's something extra here. It's, it's not a mystery, or I guess it's not mysterious, why the Portland Diamond Project uh, brought Russell Wilson and Sierra in on their deal. Uh, as they're trying to get Major League Baseball team to Portland. Like, they brought Russell Wilson in because he adds some credibility to the effort. Shaq does the same thing. But what happens when a pro athlete pretends to be, uh, or excuse me, a, a civilian pretends to be a pro athlete? What happens then? I did a story years ago. This isn't the story I'm working on, but I did a story years ago about a guy who was uh, telling people that he was the brother of Dwight Evans. Remember, Dwight Evans played for the Boston Red Sox. His brother, Dewey, also played a little bit in the big leagues, but we all knew what Dwight Evans looked like. I don't think many people knew what Dewey looked like. Well, this guy was running around, signing autographs, telling people he was Dewey Evans. And even getting on an airplane one time, he told the uh, flight attendant, I, you know, I, uh, I played in the big leagues. I'm, I'm Dewey Evans. Uh, uh, you know, Dwight Evans is my brother. And the pilots were told, hey, Dewey Evans is on the plane. The pilots called him up to the cockpit for crying out loud to sign an autograph. Turned out the guy didn't, uh, wasn't Dewey Evans. He was just telling people that. I got called into the story, and Peter, you'll appreciate this. I got called into the story because there, there was a, uh, a woman who was upset because she slept with the guy because she thought he was a former major league player. <laughs> And she reached out and said, this guy is conning people. And it turns out, like, the con wasn't about money. He just liked to be treated well and sign some autographs. And, and in fact, he would walk around. He would carry a baseball and a glove around with him. And I got news for you. I have not seen this as a habit of, you know, former Major League players. They don't tend to carry a glove around and a ball. So that should have been the first clue. What do you say? I kind of passed it off as like that's too bad, but I don't know that there's a big story here when it came to the case of the guy who was not Dewey Evans. But what do you make? What would you have told her, Peter? Like this is, uh, you know, buyer beware. I I don't know. Yeah, maybe have uh, better criteria before you uh, spend some quality <laughs> time with the yes. gentleman caller. But I mean. <laughs> That's so random, and part of me goes, really, Dewey Evans is the guy you're going to claim? But it's actually perfect because it's yes. super obscure, but people are still going to be impressed. It's wild. It's enough to for people to be impressed, but not so much that you could easily find a photo of yeah. Dewey Evans. Uh, the case I'm working on uh, is similar to that, but it involves an NFL player. And, and, and look, you do see this. This isn't unusual. Uh, years ago, the FBI called me because I had done a story about a guy who was doing the same thing, and the FBI was interested in it because it rose to the level where the guy was soliciting uh, business investments, pretending that he was a former NFL player. And so people were going, oh, I'm investing you know, with a former NFL player. This must be legit. And it turns out that the, you know, the guy wasn't really a former NFL player, and he was just taking their money and then saying, well, we never got the business off the ground uh, and keeping their money. So uh, I got that coming down the pipeline. Uh, at johncazano.com. But today I wrote about uh, college athletics, more or less the Pac-12 Conference Commissioner George Klyovkov, who's on the job for one year. It's really interesting because we talked on Friday about uh, you know his life, his year, 
I know that he spent his Friday doing a lot of media interviews, and I was really tempted to immediately turn the piece around and write it on Saturday, but I didn't. I felt like I would get a little lost over the weekend. We get lost in sort of the the uh, U.S. Open was going on and other stuff. So I waited until today to publish that. But I think it's a pretty good read and uh, take give it a look at JohnConzano.com if you're interested. Some parting thoughts are coming up. You got the bald face truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson coming up top of the hour here in Portland with the Pulse. Keep your finger on the Pulse. What do you got, Peter, on the show? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously the NBA draft coming up. We all assume Portland's going to trade that pick. There's some intel coming out that they might use, and I'll tell you why and who they might be picking. Oh, I like it. Yeah, and some Major League Baseball news. Look, we all know that uh, home runs are down, which I think is a good thing. Baseball, I think, trying to work on that a little bit. They've made a little little bit of a tweak to the – the uh, baseball situation I want to hit on. Interesting, interesting. I like that. I also think the Blazers should keep the pick. I'm not gonna. Uh, I, I'm not gonna guess who you're thinking they should pick. But look at the teams that played in the NBA Finals. I'm telling you, it's the teams that get desperate and give up their picks. Especially if you're a place like Portland, that is not going to attract free agents. You should be drafting every player you can, every pick you can possibly get in the first round. You should be making the pick because I think it maximizes your opportunities to do what the Warriors did. I mean, the Warriors got Draymond Green late. Uh, the You know, you look at how Boston drafted, even with Peyton Pritchard, who was a nice little rotation player for them. They got him late. Like, the, you know, the Blazers are picking in the top ten. There's an opportunity for the Blazers to get a player who could be part of their future. So I'd say keep the pick. Don't get sucked into this illusion that you have to line up Damian Lillard's timeline. The Warriors were not thinking about Draymond Green and Steph Curry's timeline when they took Jordan Poole and Looney, and and those two guys ended up being really important players for them in the playoffs. So I say make the pick, and if you were a – look, if you're the Lakers and you know you can just do a free agent thing, fine, I'll I'll buy that. But I think that if you are Portland – you need to take advantage of your primary talent stream. It's the draft. Take the pick. Don't be don't be an idiot here. Uh, I want to I want to play a clip from a podcast that I listen to called The House Always Wins. Uh, it was a interview that they did with a guy who was tracking the wagering on the Super Bowl. Your Rams won the Super Bowl. Yeah. They run. They won by three. Weird game. Weird finish. Missed extra point, all that. I want you to listen to this. House always wins. Hey, who this person was or who they were affiliated with, but they were very, 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 very big person in executive leadership within casino management in Vegas. And I swear to God, it was 20 minutes before kickoff, and I was eye to eye with this individual. I said to this individual, What do you want to happen? And he said to me, it would be in the casino's best interest if L.A. won by three. Most of the money is on Cincy, Moneyline, and L.A. by four. And I was like, okay. I go, how much? He's like, those are things I can't tell you. I said, how much is the industry? And the response was $20 billion. So you look at the NFL, which is a huge business, but you look at the gambling market, and so you look at where the mass population is moving. The mass population is on Cincy Moneyline. The mass population is on L.A. plus four or LA minus four. 
what the hell happened? The Some of the weirdest calls I've ever seen, a missed extra point, LA wins by three. I think my point is, is that if you have any type of conspiracy or you're starting to shake your head a little bit at how a greater institution is making more money or uh, angling or hedging against the mass population when they start to move, uh, I think due diligence is worth seeking. Well, due diligence is always worth seeking, but Peter, I love the music playing underneath <laughs> it. makes it very dramatic. But uh, look, I, I always look at these and, you know, you see stuff like, you know, Scott Van Pelt and... And others with the bad bets and uh, bad beats and all that. And, but gaming, gambling has become such a part of the sports industry. Do you? Does this get your spider senses going when the Rams win by three, or do you go, dude? It's a Super Bowl. Casinos are going to win anyway because the odds are in their favor. Like, what do you make of that? I mean, look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but even on the day of the Super Bowl, as it was going down, watching especially some of the calls. I mean, a kicked field goal. It is weird that the Pro Bowl kicker of the year missed that, uh, or excuse me, the extra point. But, man, some of the calls, the ridiculous lack of a pass interference or a pass interference that was really nothing that happened, and it all seemed to go against the Rams' way when they were up big early. Pardon me, and I I have to fully admit, like, I'm biased. I'm a Rams fan, so no matter what happens, I'm going to, you know, have the opinion that, oh, that's garbage, or no, no, it's fine, anything that goes my team's way. But I really was questioning some of that stuff in the second half. I don't know. I'm not going to say I believe this guy, but it really wouldn't shock me if, you know, on someone's deathbed, they confess to all of this being, you know, just geared a certain way. Yeah, I don't think anything. Like, when you talk about the involvement of money, you're going to get corruption. Like, you know, I was talking to a police officer over the weekend, and he was telling me that he got ripped off on eBay buying a sports trading card. He bought a trading card. It turned out that the photograph that that uh, that you know he uh, he had of the card wasn't what he actually received in the mail. The buyer protection plan at eBay was kind of crappy. He said that the uh, the seller, because the card ended up being uh, you know he thinks it's fraudulent. He told the seller, "Look, I'm a police officer. You know, like this is just a stupid thing over a couple hundred bucks to rip me off and." But I, you know, the, ultimately the conversation we ended up having was anytime there's a bunch of money in one industry, you bring problems. And I think the same goes for gambling. The same goes for trading cards. It goes for cars. It goes, you know, you see a lot of fraud wherever you have money. Bad people tend to gravitate and take advantage. And I just think it's one of these cases where, like, I think in gambling, especially when it comes to the NFL, you're welcome to have your conspiracy theories and wonder and wait, but it's a Super Bowl. I have a hard time seeing like a widespread conspiracy involving gambling, involving a Super Bowl. I think you know because we know how you know the lines are established, and the house is going to win regardless. I don't care if it's roulette. I don't care if it's uh, you know a slot machine or an NFL game. The casino will ultimately win if you play long enough. That that's the way it goes, and a lot of conspiracy theories floating out there. You could put, you could put sexy music underneath the bottom of it, but I uh, I think the bigger thing is, the Rams were more interested in winning that game than they were in the casinos making money. And you know I don't think the officials were running around on the field going, oh we got to keep this to three and not four. Uh, felt a little wonky to me, but it, it it did ultimately fall with the Rams winning by three. 
in the best possible place for the house. Everybody who had bet Cincinnati on the money line lost. Everybody who had the Rams minus four lost. And the casinos walked off with billions of dollars. But that's going to happen uh, in the same way that sometimes the casino may take a little bit of a loss. They're never going to take a beating. And, but they would have. I mean, you know, you look at even if, even if they make the extra point, they get a push on that Rams point spread. It's not a loss for them. It's just a push. So I, I think in the end the casinos know what the hell they're doing. They're just playing a numbers game. But it's worth thinking about, and it certainly got me thinking. When we've been talking, I think last week we were talking to Tim Donahue about it, but uh, it's worth thinking about, I, I'm sure. Uh, all right, uh, we have a whole bunch of shows this week. I told you early in the show we're going to focus on the Pacific Northwest Pac-12 teams. We talked today with Mike Farrell of the Seattle Times about the Huskies. He likes what Kalen DeBoer is doing. He's buying it. He says they're accessible. They've been great to work with. It's the little things. I do think it's symptomatic. I think yeah, I do think we can draw some conclusions on how the uh, Huskies have been under DeBoer. He drew a comparison to Chris Peterson. I think that's a tough comparison to make, but I think DeBoer in his time in college football has proven that the guy knows what he's doing. Uh, he won at Fresno State. It's not a place where they had had, uh, you know, it's not a it's not the worst place in college football to be coaching. But it's not a Power 5 school, and he rattled around there and I think demonstrated with a, with a quarterback that he developed in Jake Hayner that he's a guy that can win at the next level. I think Washington is looking at a season where they've got a core group of players returning from last year. they got Michael Penix Jr., who's transferred in at quarterback from Indiana. And Penix Jr., the knock on him is that he's been injury prone. He's not played more than six games in any season. But if he can keep Penix Jr. healthy... I think Washington has a favorable schedule. They have an early game in the early part of the season that is a tough one at home against Michigan State and Mel Tucker. But beyond that, they do not play USC in the regular season. They do not play Utah in the regular season. Washington could be a little bit of a sleeper in the Pac-12 to get to the conference title game. Keep an eye on the Huskies because I think they're right in there if somebody trips up. We will uh, talk about Washington State, Oregon, and Oregon State in the next three days. Not necessarily in that order, but I, I'm going to take a deep dive on all 12 programs. We're just going to go around the conference. Uh, hell, we could even go to Utah tomorrow if we feel like it. I, and that's 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 you know what we'll do, and that may be the uh, the kind of uh, thing that we do. All right. If you have a knee issue, I want you to go to reflexknees.com. It's not a day that goes by that I don't get asked about my knees. So I feel good. I can move around. I'm active. I'm not in pain. I was on my feet all weekend. I feel great at the end of the weekend. I wasn't hobbling around. If you're having knee pain, reflexknees.com. I'm telling you, go tell Dr. Riggs that you heard it on this show, and I sent you in. He and the team will take care of you. 